A star-spanning saga of ancient magic and deep science, vividly told by a modern master, says Dave Gibbons. Kelly Sue DeConnick states, the kind of epic you crave, both noun and adjective. And that doesn't even quite capture Liam Sharp's astonishing scope and vision. There's magic in these pages. Matt Fraction calls it jaw-dropping and epic and massive. He also says this is a gorgeous and incredible and massive swing for the stars that declares his ambitions have taken him to some exciting and undiscovered territories. Bravo, congrats, cheers, and exhale. This is glorious. What are they all talking about? Liam Sharp's upcoming six-issue series, Starhenge, from Image Comics. Liam himself says of the series, I wanted to do my own Image comic for 30 years. I wanted to do a Merlin comic for even longer than that. This is a culmination of so many dreams and ambitions of mine finally being realized, and that makes it the most exciting and personal comic project I've ever done. I can't wait to see it on the shelves. It's also been described as a mashup of the Green Knight and Terminator with all the Arthurian legends, time travel, and killer robots that entails, plus Merlin, Magic, and Mayhem. The first issue debuts in comic shops on July 6th, with final order cut off on June 13th. So now's the time to tell your retailers to order you a copy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to DC Spotlight for the week of June 21st, 2022. It's a Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Rocky and I are coming to you with deep dives on all the DC books that come out this week. So, as always, if you haven't read the books this week and you don't want to be spoiled, probably should pause the podcast or the YouTube video, go read the books, and then come back. Uh, I thought it was an above-average week. Uh, I thought for the most part, with the exception of of one book that I really didn't like. Uh, I thought everything was pretty outstanding. How about you, Rocky? I was much better than last week. I, I yeah, I agree. I, I, I actually, this was a, this week put a smile on my face. I enjoyed the vast majority of the books this week, uh, except for one. And I think we both <laughs> probably have the same stinker in mind, but uh, wow. this was uh, one of the better weeks for DC. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about them. Yeah, and before we dive into the books, uh, we have to send our condolences to the family and friends of Tim Sale. We mentioned last DC Spotlight that we were sending our, our best wishes for recovery to Tim, who had been hospitalized with, with what was described as a serious illness. I haven't really seen any details. I haven't really gone looking, um, to be honest. You know, it's not really my business. So I don't know, you know, what he passed away from other than it was an, an illness uh, Jim Lee was the one, the first one I saw that posted about it early last week that uh, Sale was in the hospital with a serious illness. So uh, unfortunately, he succumbed to whatever uh, illness that he had. Very, very sad. Uh, this one hit me, I have, to, I have to be honest, it hit me a little harder than George Perez or Neil Adams. You know, Adams was 80, and I know these days that's not super old. Um, and we knew that George Perez you know, had chosen not to, um, 
have any more treatment for his cancer and was in palliative care. And so, you know, you, you knew the end was going to come sooner than later. Um, but Tim Sale, he was only 67. And I feel like it was, it was far too soon. And, and on another note, you know, I'd met George Perez several times, but never really had a chance to have any in-depth conversations, mostly because George was always inundated <laughs> with a giant line or was busy talking to other creators. And I would just, you know, say hi, as opposed to Tim Sale, who I had, you know, some longer conversations with. And uh, we always talked about having him on the show. I'm, I'm really disappointed we never made that happen. But, I, I, you know, we've lost far too many amazing creators lately. And for whatever reason, the, the loss of Tim Sale just, it really, really hurts. Um, you know, anytime we lose anybody, obviously it's, uh, it's sad. But uh, for this one, it, it just hit me a little harder. So, Again, condolences to his friends, his family, his collaborators, his coworkers. Uh, it's a big loss. So, um, our best to his uh, his family. Anything to add there, Rocky? Uh, yeah, I would add. Uh, one thing about Tim Sale is, while uh, you know, if, if I'm honest, while it never quite hit me like the George Perez or, or necessarily Neil Adams, uh, the fact of the matter is, is that it probably should have because, if I'm brutally honest. Tim Sale's works uh, mean more to me. I, I've got, I think I own every single hardcover that Tim Sale, every Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale collaboration from Daredevil Yellow to Superman, uh, to Su Superman Overall Seasons to, to uh, Spider-Man Blue to Hulk Gray. I own the hardcovers of all of them. <laughs> I own the hardcovers of uh, Catwoman When in Rome. Of, I've owned the hardcover of Long Halloween. And, and when they came out, uh, he defined a generation. He we all have memories, all of us who've collected long and, and even newer collectors, we have memories of, of his work, his art. He, he redefined, he, he had a, such a unique style and he, it's the forever memories that he brought to comic books. And, you know, it's funny, he's been, he's been involved in TV. You know, he, he just in the last year, we reviewed one of his, uh, DC published one of his uh, uh, collaborations. He did a sequel to The Long Halloween uh, that that we reviewed, I think, last year. But uh, for the most part, he's been sort of doing his TV collaborations, I think, with Jeff Loeb. So we, he's sort of been off the comic book radar, at least for, for for the most part over the last decade. And so, so it. But reflecting on it, it's just it, it really is a really sad loss. And I don't know why he passed or how he passed, but I, I hope uh, I certainly w w give his condol condolences to his family. And uh, you know, God bless his soul, man. He he definitely entertained us. Yeah, he did that. Um, and uh, to be honest, <laughs> this is what's so interesting uh, because I feel his loss a little more. I wasn't the biggest fan of his style. Um, I, I haven't read everything that he, that he did. Obviously, Long Halloween. Um, uh, so what is it? Superman for tomorrow. Yeah, for all, um, yeah. 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 For all seasons. Uh, for all seasons. That's it. Yeah. Uh, those are probably the, you know, the two that spoke to me the most. You know, I have Daredevil, Yellow, and uh, what is it, Hulk Gray and and those, but I, I don't know. They never really did did a lot for me. I, again, I wasn't the biggest fan of his style, but the man was super humble, uh, especially for the, the kind of the profile that he had, and always really really great with fans. It was just fun to talk to. He loved loved comics, so uh, to me, that's kind of where the loss is. But no no doubt that he had a big impact. His style was, uh, I feel. Um, Although I didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoyed Darwin Cook's style, I, I feel like his style was similar in that 
it really boiled down to the essence of the character in you know, a little bit more of a, a simple style that could really convey what's really wonderful about comics, you know? And now it's like, man, we've lost Darwin Cook. We've lost Tim Sale. Um, I don't know. Like, I guess Doc Shaner is kind of in that, uh, in that camp now, that sort of more innocent looking feel uh, of comics. But yeah, it's feels like it's a little bit of a dying breed, but anyway, uh, on to more positive things, uh, as Rocky and I both mentioned, really, really great week of comics. So let's go ahead and dive right in. First book we're going to talk about in detail is Batman, the Knight number six. This is written by Chip Zdarsky art and cover by Carmen A. D. Jean Domenico colors are by Yvonne Placencia lettered by Pat Barroso. Uh, again, I go back to the fact that this is only a 12 issue series and, and it does give me a, a lot of hope. I'm, I'm very much anticipating the Batman run that Zdarsky is about to undertake. Um, but this is number six of, of 10. I think I just said 12. There's only 10 issues for this Batman, the night. And what I find myself thinking is I want this to be an ongoing. We've said it before uh, because it's such an interesting look. It's so intimate, right? Like when we first heard about this Batman, the night series where Zdarsky was going to go and explore um, Bruce and his journey around the world when he was training to become Batman. And it was sort of going to be the the quintessential story of that journey. You figured if it's only going to be 10 or 12 issues, that it was going to have to move along pretty quickly and be kind of this broad overview uh, where, you know, Bruce was in multiple locations, each issue training um, and, and getting the knowledge that he needed to become Batman. It's been much more intimate, much more of an intimate story than that, and really more emotional. I'm glad that it is because I think emotionality and injecting a story with a lot of emotion is where Zdarsky's work really separates from others. It may be why um, some of the other things he's, he did in the past that were more focused on humor, like Howard the Duck, didn't really work for me um, because I feel like this is where his wheelhouse is. And in this particular issue, Bruce has a falling out with um, with the guy that he has been uh, training with, Anton, um, because it really – it gets to a point where Bruce realizes that Anton isn't the guy he wants him to be. And you get the feeling – and again, I give a lot of credit to Zdarsky for, uh, for conveying this really well through language – and Dijon Domenico does a very good job visually of, uh, of uh, portraying it as well. You get the sense when this, I don't want to call it a betrayal because Anton really is only ever who Anton was. Bruce doesn't want to believe it and he, he wants to believe the best of Anton, but you can see in the, the kind of the pacing and the language choice that Zdarsky uses as well as the visual from Dijon Domenico that Bruce kind of knew all along that Anton is who he is. And that's not somebody that, that Bruce wants him to be. Bruce wants Anton to be more of a kindred spirit, right? Somebody that wants to fight crime and not kill and is going to have the same values that Bruce has. Because for the first time in this journey, when he met Anton, he, he found somebody that wanted to fight crime just like he did. And, and he sort of, I feel in a lot of ways, Bruce projected his desires onto Anton and tried to put Anton in the same box so he could feel like he wasn't alone. And that's really what this issue is about. Because in the end, after this, for lack of a better word, betrayal, 
after Anton is is true to himself and Bruce isn't particularly surprised by it, although he's hurt by it. At the end, he talks about how alone he is again. Certainly when you talk about alone and, and, and living an isolated existence, that certainly kind of jives with who Batman is. Although in recent year, you know, last 10 years or whatever, the Bat family's gotten so big that I feel like that aspect of Batman has been lost a little bit to some extent, or if not lost, they, they try to say it's there, but it's really like, how could Bruce ever possibly be alone when he has 75 sidekicks at this point? It doesn't, it doesn't yeah. work. It's why I would kind of, I kind of wish for a contraction of the Bat family. Um, and that's not to say that, uh, because I like that aspect of Batman working alone. And that's not to say I want to d- diminish or dismiss any of the characters, because I know everybody's somebody's favorite, Duke or Stephanie Brown or whatever. Th- those characters, they don't really do much for me, but you know they, they do speak to others. So so I get it. But at the end of the day, I like being able to go back and read stories like this set in the past where Bruce, before all that, right, where he is alone, or things like uh, Batman Damned or... Um, I think uh, Lee Bermejo, speaking of Batman Damned, has a, a new project coming up with DC where it's it's Batman in, in the past for Black Label books where he's by himself. Um, but anyway, uh, I thought this was a fantastic issue. I thought you could see it coming a mile away. Anton was never the guy that Bruce wanted him to be. Um, it, but it was it was brutal seeing it. Uh, and I'll let Rocky, if he wants to, to recap a little more and talk about what Anton does. It's just brutal and cold-hearted and uh, it definitely – Definitely something Bruce sort of needed, right? Because as much as he's Batman and wants to fight crime or whatever, it was this is another lesson he learned that he needed to learn. You don't when you're Batman, you know, Bruce is on this journey to become Batman, you don't have the luxury of your um of your delusions, you know, or the the luxury of your your idealized version of who people will be. You gotta face reality. And Bruce is it's shocked back into reality. Uh, by a bullet, uh, which in a lot of ways works so ironically well, considering it was um, the shock of a bullet or bullets that killed his parents that set him on this journey to begin with. So there's some nice symmetry there. Uh, So yeah, the the art, I'm not, you know, the biggest fan of Dijon Domenico. I've talked about it before in his work on the flash, just because his style is a little loose. Uh, But again, I think he does a fantastic job setting the tone and the mood and those facial expressions when, when Bruce is kind of struggling, once he realizes who that Anton is, who he doesn't want him to be, uh, it works really, really well. Uh, the other thing that I like about this, uh, the art in this issue is for a lot of the panels, there's no border. Um, and I think it helps to to show that this is in the past. Uh, and that, that works really well also. Uh, anyway, what are your thoughts, Rocky? Uh, yeah. You know, it's interesting because one of the ongoing questions is, is, Anton, actually the ghost maker. Uh, will Anton uh, return as the ghost maker? Is Anton the ghost maker? And at the end of this issue, uh, and uh, you alluded to so many interesting aspects, uh, char- great character work this issue, I'm starting to question as to whether maybe Anton isn't the ghost maker. Cause I don't we, think he is. Yeah, he might very well be a different character because we know that ghost maker was a killer, but he's given up his murderous ways to help Batman and he's now... Ghostmaker is now leading Batman Incorporated and, in fact, is, is all about not killing now. He's embracing Batman's philosophy. So it is possible that Anton is – would will become Ghostmaker. Uh, but it, it's I'm starting to wonder now if maybe something – if Anton is, in fact, a different character because we do know that Ship Sardaski is the new writer of Batman. And we haven't read his first formal – his first official issue of Batman yet. 
uh, but it's going to be interesting to see if maybe this, maybe that's, he's utilizing that sort of misdirection. People are assuming Anton is Ghostmaker, but maybe that's not the case. Uh, the work here is really good because Anton and Bruce Wayne end up, they're approaching this guy, the the, the next person to train both Bruce Wayne and Anton is a guy by the name of Luca Luca Jango, and he's a otherwise known as the Swiss Mark, and he's a marksman, and he's got he's got a very sort of like a tropey back, background insofar as well. He used to be a marksman, he used to be a hitman, and he worked for different countries, and he sort of abandoned that life because Luca wanted to get out of that life. And the only reason he is going to be training, he agrees to train uh, Bruce Wayne and. Um, and Anton is because of the God of who referred them to him. And so he agrees to help them out. And what's very interesting here, and I'm just going to, I'm gonna, I'm not going to be as detailed as I sometimes am on this. I just want people to enjoy this story for what it, what it, what it is. Cause I think there's some great character work. You're right that Sardaski and uh, uh, the, does a great job here scripting the evolution, Bruce Wayne's growing r- realization uh, of which he was heretofore willfully blind as to Anton's true nature. Anton is a killer. Uh, and uh, Anton even, you know, he, he's, I mean, it's it's just so sad because he's trained, Luca trains them both on how to kill animals. And, and near the end, it, there's, a, there's a moment where he, 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 kills a, he kills a deer by shooting it in the neck as opposed to the brain like Luca taught him. So he, he couldn't even do something as killing a, an animal painlessly. He, his instincts was to just, create misery and, 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 and pain for even an animal. And if you can't do that, there's always that, I always, it's sort of, maybe it's a little cliche, but it's sort of like the young child that grows up torturing animals. It's probably not a good sign for uh, mental health in adulthood. (laughs) So it's not a great thing, but, uh, but even Luca himself, Bruce Wayne realizes Luca's instincts, which he questioned from the beginning, Luca at the end, uh, much to his dismay, knows that Anton is a killer and will have none of it. And it culminates with the three of them having a face-off. And uh, it's quite it's quite a poignant and powerful ending that ultimately leads to uh, Anton and Bruce Wayne essentially going their separate ways. And it's sad and it's... it's Because I think both Anton and Bruce were looking for kindred souls. Anton was looking for someone who thought like he did. And so is Bruce Wayne, but they're different. And Anton, of course, has a little bit more of that uh, inclination toward lethal force, whereas Bruce Wayne is com- the complete reverse of that. And yet in so many ways, they got so much in common, but that, that lethal force, that inclination to go that extra step to kill is, is such, it, it, there, there's such a fine line between killing and not killing, just like there's, it's only a couple inches between shooting an animal in the neck versus the brain. There's, you know, there's a, the slightest change of character, the slightest movement of a fist, the slightest uh, change of an aim from a gun can mean the difference between taking somebody out versus letting them live, but still incapacitating them. And that fine distinction is what, of course, ultimately defines Batman and sets him apart from so many of his fellow uh, villains and antiheroes who might match him in skill, but they, they have a very different moral uh, uh, moral. Uh, mentality but this is a I really enjoyed this issue and I'm now excited for the fact that maybe Anton is not Ghostmaker and I'm I'm actually kind of hoping he isn't and that he ends up showing up in Shardas, or Chip Sardaski's Batman's I'd be quite curious to see that yeah I, I mean I, I obviously the 
the the link is is there, and you can't help but think when he first showed up, oh, could this be Ghostmaker? Uh, but just based on his personality, I never thought that it was. Um, but I don't know. You could think of it as a bit problematic. I've talked about this in the past, where you know we go back and do these retcons and explore people's origins, and you know you add so much stuff in there. At some point, it, it becomes ludicrous. Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I don't feel like Zerdaski here is um, contradic- contradicting anything that's come before uh, or adding something that just doesn't make sense as opposed to Rogel Czar and what Brian Michael Bendis did. Um, so I, I feel like this works a little better. But I guess we'll see who Anton is at, at some point. Um, but yeah, I don't, don't think he's Ghostmaker, but I guess we'll see. Uh, all right, up next we have Black Adam number one. 12-issue limited series, I believe. Uh, it's written by Christopher Priest. Rafa Sandoval does the art. Matt Herms on colors. Willie Schubert on lettering. Uh, obviously, you know, the timing of this with the movie coming out, I, you almost think they would have it come out a little bit later, uh, later in the year, closer to when the, the movie's coming out. But they will have a Black Adam series on the stands when the movie's in theaters. So um, what do you think of this? I like this. You know, I, I, upon first reading it, I, I had some, some mixed feelings be, because, well, I'll, I'll just say it, but because I ended up changing my mind upon a reread. And uh, because I thought at first I was a little bit frustrated that the central conceit of this story is that Black Adam, we know it ultimately ends up sharing his powers with someone else. And the concept of that kind of bothered me. I didn't, I didn't like that idea, but Upon reading this, I actually came to I, I like what Chris, writer Christopher Priest has done here, and uh, and uh, uh, Rafa Sandoval on the art is that does a, does a really good job. And as, essentially, what uh, the premise of this story and what I think actually works for me and I find very interesting is we we come across a it opens up with Teth Adam essentially at a meeting of. Uh, an OFAC meeting, which is a U.S. office of uh, foreign assets control. He's, he's dealing with U- United Nations, uh, uh, with uh, international negotiations and treaties, et cetera, et cetera. It's the part of being the, I guess, the, the leader of Kandak that you can tell Teth Adam is not a big fan of, but he, but he's, he's a knowledgeable leader. He displays, uh, Christopher Priest has Teth Adam displaying a good amount of intelligence as a leader, but at the same time, he, he's kind of tired of it and bored of it. This is uh, we, we get we get a flashback with Teth Adam fighting what looks to be ultimately ends up being revealed to be a a, a fake dark side uh, and some some great action sequences beautifully drawn by Rafa Sandoval and Matt Herms on the color the, the color work is really good really great with T- uh, Teth Adam taking out this fake dark side very well done works very well uh, but it's discovered that in taking out this fake dark side this uh, he he ends up. Uh, calling upon the lightning saying Shazam and, and upon the transformation, clearly uh, he, he, there's a part of black, a- of black Adam that's burnt. His body seems to be burnt or, or sort of like burning away and something is wrong. Something is in, in affecting his, his ability. He can call upon the lightning to make the transformation into Shazam, but he clearly appears to be dying or deteriorating in some way. And I think that uh Rafa, uh, you know, artist uh, Rafa Sandoval does a really good job here when he shows, when he shows uh, Black Lightning or pardon me, Black Adam changing into uh, 
back into Shazam, you can see, actually see the, um, you can actually see uh, in the transformation, I'm trying to find a picture of it here for those uh, watching on the chat, but uh, uh, on video, but uh, it's, you, it's almost as if his arm gets burnt. So the, the transformation is painful to him and it's, it's, it's very difficult. Meanwhile, we then flash forward and, and we're, I believe we're in, 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 I, I think it's New York City where we, where Teth Adam, where there is a, Teth Adam is running for office. He, 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 I guess they have elections in Kandak and there's a reform leader. The, 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 the leader of the reform movement in Kandak is this, uh, is this individual by the name of, um, uh, uh, Shakur Nasser. Shakur Nasser is the leader of the democratic reform movement in Kandak. Well, he ends up being murdered. And the last person that this Shandak Nasser visited was Black Adam's descendant by the name of Malik Adam White. And he's actually a med student. And what's interesting about that is you can infer from the storyline that, that the leader of this democratic reform movement in Kandak Obviously, they're working against. They're the opposing party, opposing political party to to Teth Adam. It makes sense that they would try to maybe recruit, in my mind, recruit the uh, Malik Adam White, who is the descendant of Black Adam, to maybe help their cause and run against him politically. That's my guess here. I, I like what Christopher Priest has done. He's sort of introduced some international politics, some Middle Eastern politics and machinations, and he's made it very interesting. And meanwhile, but this uh, this uh, Shakir Nasser is actually murdered, and we don't know who murdered him. But the last person apparently that the Shakir Nasser saw was this medical student, this Malik character, who is, again, the descendant of Black Adam. And Black Adam approaches him, and he approaches him in the hospital and this, this Malik, he's a, he, he's a, I like the dialogue here. He's sort of a cocky, good natured, uh, medical student who's sort of kind of pretending to be a doctor. He doesn't correct people when they think he's a doctor, but he's, even though he's a smart ass to, to Teth Adam, he notices that he's, he's injured because Teth Adam is injured because of his transformations to, to, uh, into Black Adam clearly has compromised him in some way. And there are, you know, you can see he's bandaged up. It's almost like his body is being burned. And in any event, we, we end up meeting a Malik, uh, Malik's uh, best friend who, uh, who he's got a, his Malik, his best friend is named Jasmine. And he's, he's sort of, that's sort of, he, he's in love with Jasmine, but she just wants to be best friends. So right away, Christopher Priest has established a potential love interest. He's established the international background here. He's established, I think, a really good foundation for the story. He's established uh, what's at stake for Teth Adam, and it appears to be his connection to the power of Shazam. And and at the end, it's Black Teth Adam orchestrating what appears to be a kidnapping of his own descendant, Malik to try to confront him and, and essentially offer him the legacy of Black Adam. So one, it's it's suggested here at the end that uh, basically Teth Adam, he believes he is dying and he's offering Malik, who's his descendant, the power of Black Adam. To, he wants to bequeath it to, uh, to Malik, his descendant. And I think that's very, very interesting. I also like the fact that they're... Uh, because they're descendants, I like the fact that, you know, 
you, there's obviously in the over the thousands of years, Teth Adam was. Uh, I'm assuming he was kind of Egyptian or, or Arabic. I'm not really sure what his nationality was, but his descendant is is actually black, or it would appear to be. African American or whatever exactly Malik is, but I, I like how the interplay of that, and I like how he wants to he wants to bequeath him with it. Now I don't I don't know enough. I got to read my Black Adam story. I didn't know. I, I thought the wizard still had the power over the lightning. I didn't think that Black Adam had the power to bequeath his lightning to somebody. I thought the wizard had some say in that, but I know that Shazam, Captain Marvel, can can share his lightning with other members of the Marvel family. And so I assume that Black Adam could, I know Black Adam has shared his power of Shazam with Mary Mar Marvel at one point, but I didn't think he could totally give it up to someone else before. Uh, but, uh, you know, people in the chat or whatever can maybe correct me on that or fill in some of the details in the history of Black Adam. I'll probably uh, look up Googling it later, but I find it very interesting here. This is a really great opening issue because it establishes some very high stakes for Black Adam. And it is worth noting that this takes place before the death of the Justice League in issue 75 of the Justice League. So, and because we know that Teth Adam did not, was, did not have two minds, he, he wasn't merged with anyone when he was, when he fought against the great darkness in Justice League 75. Presumably this series ends and can we assume that his Malik is not part of his consciousness? He's not merged with Malik. I'm, 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 I'm assuming that because this takes place before Justice League seventy-five. But, but who knows? So, um, anyways, I thought this was well done for an opening issue. And uh, what do you think? Yeah, I thought it was really, really well done. Also, um, just because the first issue takes place before. Justice League 75 doesn't mean the whole series does, so it'll be interesting to see if it does come into play. Uh, obviously, we've seen some some new news articles and whatnot talking about you know this new Black Adam, and, and I guess the solicits for four came out recently, and it's talking about you know a younger version of Black Adam, which you know is a reference to this character Malik. So uh, we'll wait and see. You know, uh, one thing that Christopher Priest is is known for is he's going to tell the story that he wants to tell. You know. You know, DC editorial knows. You ask Christopher Priest to tell a Black Adam story. He's not going to really, you know, pull from things that are done before. His story's not going to be really derivative. He's going to do something, you know, completely different and tell the story that he wants to tell. And that must be the direction they wanted to go. It's a little surprising to me uh, because here we have Ted Adam, who is Black Adam, who's the character The Rock is playing in the movie. And right here at the beginning of the first issue, we already say, yeah, we're going to kill that guy. And we're going to have this young kid as uh, Black Adam. So I find that to be really interesting. I, I don't know that fans of the movie will be on, on board with that. But one of the things I do like, as much as the art by Rafa Sandoval is fantastic, I really appreciate the fact that he didn't draw Black Adam to look like The Rock, which I, I really dislike when they when they do that. Um, again, it's DC Multiverse. The Black Adam movies, just think of it as a different you know, part of the multiverse as this, but you are going to have people that, that, you know, pick up this comic based on the movie and go, how come he doesn't look like the rock, you know? So uh, I'm, I'm a fan of black Adam. I think that Christopher priest who did a fantastic job on Deathstroke, is a really good writer to take on black Adam. Cause again, black Adam is not a hero and he's not a villain and he's not even an anti-hero black Adam cares about himself and he cares about his, his country of Kendik and that's it. Um, 
and so I, you know, I appreciate when he's in sort of his civilian identity here, Lord Theo, as he wants to be called, um, that that's what he's on, you know, that's what he's looking out for. So that, that felt very authentic to me. So, um, I liked him beating dark side too, before we knew it was dark side. Although I did, you know, have a thought, well, black Adam, man, Christopher Priest is making him really powerful. He's able to take out dark side on his own. Then we find out it's an illusion. Uh, and then, you know, he injured his hand during that battle. And that must be, you know, that's how I took it anyway. That's why he's saying he's dying. I mean, is did this illusion or what have you have some sort of anti-life equation? And because at the moment he punched Darkseid in the chest, he yelled out Shazam, transformed into his human form. You know, was he infected? Was he vulnerable at that point? Um, but yeah, I, I, I like the story. I like the fact that uh, he doesn't worry about his injury too much because that's the arrogance of, of Tet Adam. And, you know, he transforms the black. Oh, I got this. I'll heal myself real fast. I'll just transform into Black Adam. He transforms. Doesn't make a difference. He's still dying. Uh, it's a great start. Um, if you're not familiar with Christopher Priest's style, it can be jarring at times. It has everything to do with the, the pace at which Priest wants to tell his story. And he doesn't always tell it in a linear fashion, or at least he didn't in Deathstroke. There were a lot of flashbacks. Um, this one, it gets a little choppy at times. Uh, but for the most part, I mean, we do get the flashback of the fight against Darkseid, but for the most part, it's a pretty linear story, but you do get some, some small time jumps. Um, and, you know, you can tell when there's a jump because you've got that Chris, the thing that Christopher Priest is known for, just a plain black panel with, you know, a description of, uh, of the location. For example, when we switch from the crime scene where um, Shakur Nassar was, was found killed, to the, the hospital says the newsboy Metro East emergency department, Washington, DC. So that's very, that's a very typically priest thing to do. I think he started doing it when he was writing quantum and Woody for Valiant. And then he continued it. Most people know it from his black Panther run at, at Marvel. And then obviously he's continued ever since. Uh, well, I should say he's con continued to do it in, in Deathstroke. Uh, and when he, came back to write a little bit of quantum and Woody at Valiant. I don't know if he does it for like his Vampirella or whatever. I don't read any of that dynamite stuff, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, I thought he was a good choice. Um, I've known this was coming for a, a while. Actually, when Christopher was on the show uh, last time we got to talking after we stopped recording and he, we were talking about black Adam a little bit. He, he mentioned that he was going to be taking him on. So uh, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I'm glad it's out there now and we can talk about it. So I thought it was a fantastic start. Uh, okay, yeah. up next we have uh, Batman Superman World's Finest number four. Uh, did you have anything else to add, Rocky, about Black uh, Adam? No, no, that's it. It's fine. Okay, gotcha. Uh, all right, so number four, speaking of great comics, um, I, I love what Mark Wade has been doing in this story. We, we talked about how he's uh, tying it in with some things that have come from other writers. The art by Dan Morris, fantastic. Tamra uh, Bonvillan does the colors. Aditya Bidikar in letters. Um, so this, you know, specifically tying it into to what's happened on Lazarus Island and what Joshua Wimson's been doing in the Robin series with this, this demon, uh, Master Nezha, who has uh, basically possessed, starts out at the beginning of the issue, he's possessed a lot of the members of, of the Justice League, including... Uh, Green Lantern and John Jones and uh, Firestorm, Donna Troy, Red Tornado, Martian Manhunter, uh, Kid Flash, 
which is interesting. It's it's the Wally West version of Kid Flash in his old school yellow and red costume, like back when he wore uh, back <laughs> when he wore Titans. I thought that was interesting because uh, obviously he's Flash now, but you know, story must be in the past or what have you. Black Canary's there as well, so I, I thought that was you know a lot of fun. Um, and it feels very classic and, uh, you know, I'm not surprised. It's probably a story that Mark Waits wanted to tell for a long, long time, which maybe is why some of these characters are their, their old versions. Cause for that matter, it's the old version of Firestorm as well, or appears to be, you know, the, the Ronnie Raymond, uh, Martin Stein, Professor Martin Stein version, as opposed to the Jason Rush version who uh, appears as African-American. Um, but either way, it's just such a fun story and it's been really fast paced uh, and, just had a big cast of characters and right, right from the f- first issue, we had doom patrol. Uh, we had Superman weekend. Um, and it's just been a, a lot of fun. So in this particular issue, as I mentioned, green lantern being possessed by Nez who and, uh, you know, fighting for him. And, you know, there's this point where Batman and Superman are, are hiding behind a construct that the philosopher stone has conjured up that, that Batman's, been able to to conjure to protect them from Green Lantern's attack. But Batman said, hey, it's not going to hold out forever. The Philosopher's Stone is going to crumble. We're going up against Hal Jordan. He's got the strongest willpower you know, of anybody, stronger than me, stronger than you. Uh, and he's talking to Superman when he says this. He's like, but maybe not stronger than both of us together, right? And so basically what he says, what Bruce says to Clark is, you know, we have to try to combine our, our willpower, right? Like think the same thought and concentrate on it. Uh, and what they concentrate on is to, to pull the ring, literally pull the ring off of Hal Jordan's finger um, and have it on, you know, go on to their finger. And, I, you know, how could, well, they're two people. How can it, well, no, they're not two people when they manage to do that. And they manage to pull the ring off and it goes on their finger, but they've been combined. And, I, I you know, we've seen this image in, in previews and, um DC was even doing a little bit of marketing. Hey, don't miss Batman Superman World's Finest Number Four. It's the first appearance of this new hero. And based on the the symbol, what I thought was this was going to be one of the heroes from the past, the the group that um, that yes. Supergirl and Robin had gone back to to talk to. The Warriors uh, of G. The Warriors yeah, of Warrior, G. Yeah, the Warriors of G. I yeah. thought it was going to be one, one of them. I had no idea it was going to be this Batman Superman hybrid or bat, bat yeah Batman Superman <laughs> hybrid with the power of Green Lantern. I mean it it is awesome. It's such a fantastic moment. It's like one of those holy shit really cool comic book moments and it's like as soon as I saw this and it's a beautiful full page splash from Dan Mora and Mark Wade's smart enough to get out of Mora's way and not put a single word on the page just give us this beautiful splash. Uh, I couldn't help but think of one of my favorite uh, episodes of the Super Friends cartoon from back in the day. They're like trapped in space and um, they're in, there's like kryptonite around. So Superman can't save them. And they're the green lantern is there and he's got them all um, in this bubble, even Superman to protect him from the green, uh, the green kryptonite radiation. And there's nobody except Superman who can move the bubble out and get them back to earth but Superman can't go out there because he'll be killed by the kryptonite. And so Green Lantern uses his ring to merge himself and Superman together. And in the cartoon, it's that as they merge it sh- the, in the cartoon, they shift back and forth, like 
for a second, it looks like Green Lantern. And then in the next second, it looks like Superman. It goes back and forth, back and <laughs> forth. This is what reminded, it reminded me of that. Obviously, this is Batman thrown in there. We got Batman, Superman with Green Lantern's powers. But it was just such a fantastic moment and so much fun. Um, and I just thought it was it was awesome. Plus, Supergirl gets to make uh, kind of a heroic rescue because even though they're this powerful with uh, Superman, Batman merged with the power of Green Lantern's ring, the ring, as we know, has a finite charge. Again, going back to, you know, classic DC lore that Mark Wade's well known for. So they start running out of power in the middle of fighting Nezha and Supergirl comes to the rescue with the knowledge that she got from the Warriors of G that, hey, we've got to lock this uh, this beam, we've got to lock Nezha back in his tomb, but the door can only be shut permanently from the other side. Um, so some, you know, someone's going to have to go in there and make the sacrifice, just like one of the words of G did back in the day. Like that's the mystery, right? That's why uh, um, Tim Drake, Robin, and, and Supergirl went back in time, uh, or was it Damien? That was Tim Drake, right? Uh, uh, no, it's the, yeah. uh, it's, I think it it's Dick Grayson. It's Dick Grayson. <laughs> oh, Dick Grayson. That's right. Dick Grayson. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, m- a much younger Dick Grayson. So again, yeah. obviously this is in the past, but th- that was the whole reason that they went back, uh, that him and Supergirl went back because they didn't, it was a mystery of how this, these warriors of G were able to defeat Nezha way back in the day. Um, and apparently this isn't like a permanent solution because I seems like Nezha would be able to do the same thing that he did this time to break out, which basically it took him, you know, thousands and thousands of years, but, and there is no magical spell to free him from his prison. So he created one. He said he had to create it syllable by syllable. And it literally took him thousands of years. So at least they can lock him up and, you know, maybe you set a reminder on the calendar, you know, a couple days before, Hey, let's go lock this guy back down again. But either way, Mark Wade's weaving a lot of really, really great ideas together. And I mean, to me, the, the price of admission is worth it just for that image, just for that moment when Superman and Batman merge together. Um, and I think, did they give themselves a name? I thought they gave themselves a name. Oh, I missed that uh, if they did. Uh, I thought somebody referred to, or they might've referred to themselves as something, but I don't see it now. But anyway, it was a, it was a fantastic moment and it brought a big smile to my face. So, uh, and, and yeah, the Dan Moore art is is really fantastic. So, what were your thoughts on it? Uh, this is just this is the way comic books should be written. I mean, Mark Wade is is actually taking every single DC writer presently to school in terms of uh, how, how to write a good comic book story, action packed. And this is even character based. There's there's even char- some character progression here, but he knows these characters so well. He just does such a fantastic job and it's fun. And not only that, he's got fun with the strategy of it as well. Like I like the way he choreographs the fights. He's got Batman and Superman thinking as they're fighting and they're thinking tactically and strategically. I mean, even the whole, I mean, even the whole idea of, I mean, of for Batman to think that, look, you know, you're never going to have more willpower. Individually, they had, they don't have more willpower than Hal Jordan. And in fact, even combined, they doubted they had the willpower to, to overcome Hal Jordan. But it's because Hal Jordan is, is being mind controlled by the demon Nezha that that further compromises Hal Jordan. So it was a, a strategic, you know, it was a, it was a strategy. Well, okay, maybe Hal is, Hal's not at his in his it's not his A game, so let's 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 
get the ring away from him. And God damn if it didn't work. And and then just uh, the way they had to battle the other heroes and how Batman and Superman with Superman's body, you could almost tell like they're merged and they're using Batman strategy, Batman strategizing while maybe ba- Superman has the is utilizing the superpower of the body and, and ba- Batman's strategic intellect. And while they got the power of the Green Lantern and they're taking on Kid Flash, Black Canary, Firestorm, Wonder Girl, Martian Manhunter, Red Tornado. This was just fun. And in the meantime, we got Supergirl and uh, uh, Dick Grayson in the past talking to the Warriors of G where they find out the information they need to entomb. Uh, they got to entomb the demon Nessa back in his tomb uh, in uh, Corto Malt- Maltese. And in order to do that, Supergirl and Robin try to fly back to the present and they get separated. So Robin is lost in time somewhere. Supergirl makes it back in time just to save uh, Superman and bat and uh, Superman and Batman uh, in their green lantern iteration. And she manages to, in, in, at least temporarily seem to incapacitate the demon Nezha. And uh, we know that a sacrifice is going to have to be made because whoever entombs the demon Nezha again, you're going to have to sacrifice yourself and lock his tomb from the inside. And in such a way that he doesn't escape like he did last time by, by over many, many thousands of years. But uh, just, just really great. Uh, I'm really curious to know more about the warriors of Xi. Um, I'm very interested to see what, what exactly this this character by the name of Zurahan was a warrior of G. He was the one that sacrificed himself to lock himself inside the tomb. And yet, is he dead? Is he alive? Did he die in the tomb? We don't know. Maybe he's going to end up popping up. We, we, we don't know. But I, I really like what, what Wade has done. They're having a lot of fun. And let's not forget that there's a, a possible linkage between the demon Nezha and uh, Ra's al Ghul, the demon's head. And so maybe is the demon Nezha responsible for contaminating the the Lazarus pits? And maybe that's why the Lazarus pits are poisoned. And what was the consequence of the poisoned uh, that with the Lazarus pits being compromised? Well, Deathstroke was resurrected by the Lazarus pits. And, uh, and that's why he's fighting Nightwing and the rest of the heroes in Dark Crisis at the end of Dark Crisis number one, where he ended up killing Changeling, seemingly. So... It might be that all this storyline that that Mark Wade has weaved so far is connected to a larger. I leave it to Mark Wade to connect it to the larger tapestry of the DC universe right now. So I'm loving this action-packed, fantastic art by Dan Mora. I mean, this is uh, it's this is a tough one, but this is one of my favorites of the week. Yeah, it's it's just really good. Again, that that image of Superman, Batman merged with the Green Lantern ring is yeah worth the price of admission, no doubt. Uh, all right. Well, up next, I'm glad you have to go first on this one. <laughs> Catwoman number 44. Tinny Howard uh, does the story. Bengal on the art. Jordi Belair on colors. Tom Napolitano on letters. Uh, what'd you think? Did it work for you? Um. Well, I, uh, <laughs> oh, man. Okay, let me just get set up here. Well, you know, the variant covers are really nice. <laughs> Got a really beautiful Jenny Frizen cover. The cardstock four ninety nine, and there's a fantastic uh, cover C. Uh, it's probably the one in twenty five, which is particularly sexy. Uh, with uh, it looks like Harley Quinn and Catwoman in a in a ho- charging a hotel room to Bruce Wayne, uh, and they're they're whooping it up, and there there's rollerblades on the ground, and it's a gorgeous cover, gorgeous cover. Uh, look, uh, Teeny Howard continues the story here that was began last issue, where last last issue we got the first what what I have since been told, or you may have. You may have told me, I think you told me last 
uh, last issue that we reviewed that Red Claw is actually a character from the from the animated Batman universe. Yep. Which which I wasn't aware of, or if I did, I, I don't remember. But she ends up. Uh, Red Claw here is essentially hired by the Black Mask to take out Selina because Black Mask is really really pissed off at Selina. We know because Selina humiliated him, defeated him. Now the Black Mask is is has been told by the other four crime families uh, of Gotham to you know look, you, you, we're not going to kill Selina. Uh, you you betrayed us. You know. Uh, Stay, you know, you're, you're, you're basically, I mean, Black Mask is not supposed to have any power, but there's a member, there's one other member of the, uh, one of the, one of the crime families is still, for whatever reason, seems to have some reasons to want to listen to Black Mask to send an assassin, this Red Claw, to take out, uh, Selena. And meanwhile, while Red Claw is attacking Selena in the, this, this roller derby, this, this, uh, this entire, this entire issue sort of, it takes place, uh, um, uh, uh, teeny hours, the writer Bengal on the art. The art here is a little bit, it's a little bit wonky. I don't know the art. I seem to, I didn't mind it so much last issue, this issue. It seemed like maybe one issue was enough for me I, on the art. I don't know. You know, again, art is subjective. So all the power to people who, who like it. Uh, there, there is, there is a dynamism, a dynamism to the art, and you know, he, he's Bengal is on the art is 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 pretty good at conveying action. I just uh, would have liked to have been a little bit more uh, sexy and a little bit more. It's not quite my style, but Selena and Harley, they they have a lot of fun. The roller derby seems seem to be fun, and. Uh, Red Claw, this is just Red Claw going crazy, wanting to kill Selena, and she's just gung-ho for it. Meanwhile, there's this other third character who's just been following Selena and Harley around, and it ends up that Red, you know, Selena thinks that maybe Red, that Black Mask hired another person, this this person that was, this man that was following Selena around, maybe he was also hired to take them out. This really offends Red Claw. She gets really upset, you know, because this Red Claw here, you could tell she she doesn't like men. Red Claw doesn't like men. And um they're against um this this third guy who was just sort of like a stalker of Selena. He ends up Red Claw Red Claw ends up essentially you know, causing a bunch of havoc, following Selena and Harley around. There's a huge car chase. They leave the roller derby, and there's there's lots of action. This is like definitely like a the road trip from hell for Selena and Harley. And there's action, and they you know they manage to defeat Red Claw, but then they end up befriending Red Claw because Red Claw gets all upset at this other third guy who's been following them. She resents the fact that Black Mask would hire somebody else. Uh, how, you know, she feels insulted that, you know, why would you hire more than one hit person when you have me? And this, it, it's, what, what what seems off to me on this s- series is Red Claw is trying to brutally murder and literally at times to burn to death Selena, burn her to death with a, with a flamethrower in a roller derby and then literally kill her. By, you know, by smashing into, you know, and like these are women that are literally trying to kill each other. I mean, Selena, Selena and Harley are trying to defend themselves against Red Claw, but this Red Claw is a brutal killer. And then at the end, it's 
writer Teeny Howard tries to suggest that I guess the really bad guy is this is this is this stalker, this white guy who is just following Selena around because he's probably he's creepy. He's a stalker. So, yeah, he's probably maybe he is creepy. But, you know, to suggest that, you know, Red Claw's all upset, you know, because Black Mask hates women. And then the message is, you know, he hates women and. And Selena tells Red Claw, you know what? If if he hates women, and so if Black Mask hired you, I bet you if you were a man, he'd he'd have paid you more. That's kind of the message. And and it ends with Red Claw, Selena, and Harley continuing their road trip, all happy. You know, uh, there's a scene with, you know, at the, there's an ending scene. They're driving back to Gotham. You know, Selena's driving, Red Claw and Harley in the back seat. You know, like all is for, seemingly forgiven and they're driving back to Gotham. And it just seems like, <laughs> this is very, very hard to believe. This, this does not possess, even within the insanity of the DC universe, I find it, this doesn't really possess that magic word, that, verisimilitude uh but it is it is fun and crazy but at the same time i thought i thought it was a little heavy-handed with the you know black hand hates i mean black hand and dr psycho over in wonder woman they definitely have one thing in common they hate women they resent women they're misogynist yeah we get it that message was loud and clear here again i thought it was a little heavy-handed and you know i i i really enjoyed i i thought teeny howard did a good job ending the her defeat, Catwoman's defeat of the Black Mask. I thought that was well played, and uh, we know that Black Mask is is a sick person and it, obviously misogynist. But this, uh, I thought this was a little heavy handed here, and this Red Claw, the fact that she's not incarcerated or apprehended, and then they're they're they they, they end up dropping off this guy. They deliver this other guy who's just a stalker. Now, again, stalking is bad. Don't get me wrong. But they end up dropping the stalker off to to Black Mask, pissing off Black Mask. And they got to know that he's this stalker is probably going to be killed by Black Mask. And But meanwhile, they don't d- deliver back Red, Red Claw, who was hired to kill them. I thought that um, – I thought – I, I didn't buy that for a second. And, and and I realize that this is a female empowerment comic in some respects because it is Catwoman. I get it. I, I I just thought that was a little heavy handed. But again, maybe I'm just nitpicking. But I <laughs> I mean, I had fun with it. I just thought, you know, in terms of story, I thought, well, I thought they abandoned the, the how the story ought to have concluded and the way it did I were a little bit off to me. But what do you think? Yeah, I didn't like it. Um First of all, the art, I'm not a fan of Bengal style. It works on the right story. I think uh, it was, I think Rick Remender that he did a story with called Glory, um, kind of the road to glory kind of thing. And she was into cars and whatever. And dad was a mechanic. That worked, right? With this kind of zany style that he he gives us. Um, But I think it's wrong for Catwoman. And maybe I'm just still stuck in the... Rom V version, you know, very crime noir. And to Tinny Howard's credit, the, the fir- her first arc felt very crime noir and very slick. Um, thought the art worked really well, very neon. We talked about that kind of 80, this 80s Miami Vice style. Uh, and it's not that Bengal's art doesn't suit this, the tone of the story that she's telling here, because to me, last issue and this issue both, it this shouldn't say Catwoman. 
on the front. This should say Harley Quinn. This is a Harley Quinn comic. It's not a Catwoman comic. And in a Harley Quinn comic, you totally buy that, yeah, the villain is trying to kill Harley, you know, on the first five pages. But by the end of the book, they're best friends, right? That's Harley. She's insane. She would do something like that. She would befriend somebody like that. Cat, I expect my Catwoman stories, and I expect a little more pragmatism from Selena. So you're 100% right. This doesn't have the, the ring of truth. I mean, we get this crazy villain who's super violent, trying to kill them with a flamethrower, Red Claw. And then by the end, they're, they're best friends with this crazy zany art style and a roller derby in the middle. Uh, and, and Harley cracking her jokes about, oh, I got to go buy cheese sticks and appetizers and, and whatever, you know, this is a Harley, this is a Harley Quinn comic. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, don't. it is funny to a little bit. I, I do chuckle. I, I mean, even as you say that, I'm chuckling as you say it because it does have a fun element to it, I think. But it, like you said, I, <laughs> I'm sort of torn a little bit. But it's crazy, but it's also kind of nonsensical. And wow, well, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and that's Harley. And you know, typically, I'm not a Harley Quinn reader. Stephanie Phillips has been doing a great job on Harley and has brought you know a little more grounded sensibility to the Harley title and I've been enjoying it more, but this is, this harkens back to before <laughs> Stephanie Phillips run where again, I'm not a fan. Does Bengals art style suit it? A hundred percent it does. But, you know, I was a huge fan of what Rom V and Fernando Blanco did. I, I talked about the aesthetic and how it felt like the movie, like the movie heat or any other of the great uh, movies that Michael Mann, he also did the movie with Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx collateral it just it has a certain feel it's very serious it's very grounded it's very real um this is miles and miles away from that so you know credit to teeny howard for being very versatile in her writing style because this if this is what she set out to do create a zany fun harley selena road trip story then 100 percent she has succeeded that's just not a story that i'm going to enjoy this is not for me the art style is not for me so here's hoping that once this is over, we can get back to a more grounded style of Catwoman stories where, you know, Selena is going up against the different crime families or, you know, it's just it's just a little more real. This is just a little too out there. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad, you know, if people are chuckling and getting laughs out of it. Hey, more power to you. I'm, I don't read Catwoman to get laughs. You know, I just don't. <laughs> I don't really read. Harley Quinn to get laughs either, but I, at least I would expect that humor to be in a Harley Quinn comic. I don't really expect humor in my Catwoman comics. I just, I just don't. So that's just, again, a personal thing. Um, so uh, again, you know, technically a well-done comic. Bengal's storytelling is fantastic. Always has been. I just don't prefer his line work. Um, again, it, it suits this zany humorous story that, that they're telling. It's just, it's not a story that I'm, I'm enjoying. So, uh, anyway, uh, apologies for making you go twice in a row first, Rocky, but I, again, we've talked about it last time. I don't read fables, have never read fables. So we have uh, issue 152 of fables. I didn't read this because again, I have no context. So I'll give you a chance to talk about it. It's from writer creator, Bill Willingham, Mark Buckingham does the pencils, Steve Leah Aloha on inks, Lee Luffridge on colors and Todd Klein on letters. Uh, yeah, let me see. Uh, it looks like I forgot to upload the picture on that, so I'll go back to my general. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay, so 
for, for fans of the fables, uh, this is issue 152 of the fables. Fans of the fables will know that when fables first came out all those years ago, the, the primary villain was somebody known as the adversary. And for, I think it was, I might stand to be corrected on this and that's okay. For about four or five years, the big mystery was who is the adversary? Who, which fairy tale character was the, was the big bad villain known as the adversary? And ultimately it was revealed to be Geppetto. Geppetto, the, the, the father of Pinocchio, he was revealed to be the, the great big bad adversary. And flash forward to the end of fables, uh, uh, in, in issue 150, the adversary the adversary was ultimately defeated. And at the end of Fables, we had the death of Cinderella, the death of Tottenkinder, which was sort of like the Wicked Witch. And what, what's happened so far, what Bill Willingham is doing here, and what he's doing, he's setting the chess pieces in place on the story. And for, for longtime readers of Fables, you really enjoy it. I do think it's... It's. It could be a little bit more accessible for new readers like yourself. One of the things that really stands out in this opening issue is is this this new character who we're wondering who he is. And on the alternate cover, uh, Tinkerbell. This new character is has a has a partner named Tinkerbell. And so I'm pretty sure this new character is Peter Pan. All right, and Peter Pan is approaches approaches. The, the adversary, because the adversary was defeated and it's, it's revealed here. And this is a very big revelation that the adversary, there was always somebody more powerful than the adversary. And that was this new character, this character, Peter Pan. And Peter Pan gave the adversary certain rules. And one of the rules was you basically leave this realm alone, the Monday realm alone, because he, Peter Pan considers this realm poisonous and everything else. And it's, it's a problem world, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, uh, meanwhile, Cinderella comes back to life. And how does Cinderella come back to life? Because that was the question I had. Apparently, Cinderella made a deal with God or another sorcerer. Uh, and uh, what I love about it is William, William Willingham has fun with the idea that there's so much resurrection in comic books. Well, it ends up that Cinderella made a deal with a goddess or a sorcerer to, to have a, a certain implant in her leg that it's good for one resurrection. It's good for one resurrection. So when she was killed by Tottenkinder at the end in issue 150 of Fables, she's she's got one, thanks to sorcery, she's got one resurrection back. So she's resurrected and, and this device is removed from her. And meanwhile, we've got this uh, this other character, uh, who uh, this uh, uh, old Jack, uh, Jack in the Green character is taking over, is taking over control of the Black Forest. And that's where she's ultimately going to come into conflict, likely with Big B Wolf, the Big Bad Wolf, and Snow White, and their and their children who are sort of living in the Black Forest now. Meanwhile, the adversary is encaptured in in this Soulstone. Peter Pan cages the adversary in this uh, stone at the end of this issue. But adversary talked about how he's been trying to get back into power again, and he's learned some new magics, and he hints at. He hints at, he plants in the eyes of the reader the possibility that the adversary is going to come back. That even though Peter Pan seemingly has caged the adversary in this stone, in this magic stone, that that possibly uh, Tinkerbell is wrong when Tinkerbell says that he can't escape for 10,000 lifetimes times 10,000 lifetimes. Well, 
the adversary isn't down and out yet, I suspect. So I think the adversary is going to return to wreak havoc and maybe get his revenge on Peter Pan here. <laughs> I love how Peter Pan looks. He, he wears a suit and he's got a little kind of a fancy cane with Tinkerbell flying around him. Very, very interesting. Mark Buckingham on the art does a really good job uh, with the character. And I'm, I'm really intrigued. He's planting the seeds here. I don't know where this is going. What's Cinderella going to do now that she's back? If she's returned, will Totten Kinder, the Wicked Witch, will she return? What the hell are uh, the Big Bad Wolf and Snow White up to? What are their kids going to be doing now that they're budding children and they're coming into their own powers? There's, uh, there's, this is, uh, you know, this is like Sandman. If you're a Sandman reader, you're, you know, you can catch on to Sandman right away. If you're a Fables reader, you'll catch on to this. I, this is, this is a lot of fun if you're a longtime Fables reader. Uh, I wish Willingham would have taken a little bit more care, maybe setting up some of these things for newer readers because this is, this is good stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I I know Fables has a very loyal following. I'm glad it's back for longtime readers. Yeah, I mean, I tried to read the last issue, and I, I was when it came back, I was so lo I was so lost. Um, the other thing I love about it, and again, I'm sure this is 100% Willingham. I give him a lot of credit. It comes back as issue 151, right? Yeah. Like there was no, hey, let's start over with the new number one, blah, blah, blah. No, I love that they just picked up where they left off. So. And, and literally it's picking up right where what, you could literally read 150 to 151 and, and it would be like there was no break. You know, and yet there's been like a whatever, a, what was it, a seven-year break? I mean, it's just incredible. It's been a long break, but you'd never know it by looking at the ending of the two issues of 150. Yeah. I thought it was even longer than that. I thought it was, yeah. wasn't it like 2012? I, I think it was 10 years maybe. Yeah, so. no, fair enough. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, you're right. I'm not, I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure you could be right. But anyway, let's move on. Um, next up, we have Dark Crisis, Young Justice, number one. Uh, this is one of many Dark Crisis uh, adjacent series. This one's written by Megan Fitzmartin, who we know is going to be doing the new uh, Tim Drake series that's coming up. Um, Laura Braga is the artist, and I got to say, the art, this is maybe the best Laura Braga work I've ever seen. Her line work in this is exquisite. She really helps capture the youthful feel that a Young Justice book should have. Luis Guerrero on colors, very primary, which again, helps to capture. Kind of interesting that, you know, a, a book that's sub <laughs> subtitled Dark Crisis uh, being such bright colors, but again, it's young, it's vibrant, it's very traditionally super heroic, so it should have bright colors. Pat Broso does the letters. Again, this is a mini series, you know, and it does tie in a dark crisis. Uh, we're going to get six issues, and it does have a, a variant cover by Todd Nock, who you know that's perfect. He, along with Peter David, are the the ones that uh, that did Young Justice and comics, you know, first. So uh, I was. I was very pleasantly surprised to see him with a, a variant cover. The main cover by um, by Max Dunbar and Luis Guerrero is also very, very well done. So you can't go wrong with either cover. Now, all that being said, I never have read Young Justice, even though I'm a big fan of Peter David, a big fan of Todd Nock. Uh, you know, Todd's actually a friend. I've never, I've never read it. Um, so I can't really speak to how well this captures the feel of Young Justice. But I think it does it quite well. I think it does a very good job of balancing sort of the dark, dare I say, depressing or at least sort of, you know, more of a, a less hopeful story uh, that Dark Crisis is with the Justice League, ha you know, having been killed. That, that's more of a downer of a story. 
Young Justice, a very upbeat story, traditionally super heroic, you know, maybe aimed at younger readers, trying to get younger readers interested in comics. And, you know, you've got Bart Allen impulse as sort of the, um, you know, the comedic portion of the story. You've got Tim Drake as, you know, sort of the straight man. You've got Connell as sort of the, the cool kid that everybody wants to, to emulate. Uh, and those are the three that get sort of pulled back in time back to a more innocent time, one might say, uh, and, and are trying to figure things out. Meanwhile, Arrowette has left the superhero life behind. And even though these three disappear, nobody wants to help Cassie Sandsmark, Wonder Girl, find them. And everybody just thinks, oh, they're probably just, you know, off dealing with their grief in private, you know, as far as the, the Justice League and their mentors having been seemingly killed. Um and nobody wants to help Cassie. She seems to be the only one that's really worried about them. Arrowette's like, nah, I've moved on. I'm sure they're fine. So it's an interesting hook, you know, right from the start. And in the end, there's a, the younger version of Cassie Sandsmark that shows up and sort of saves the boys when they're uh, in the middle of this fight against this well-endowed super villainous. I can't even remember what her name is. What is the the mighty endowed. That's right. The mighty endowed. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but again, I, I, I mean, they say mighty endowed, but in just about every panel she's in, she's got like all this smoke, like right in front of her, in front of her chest. In a lot of in, incidentally, so, Jace, that that's a callback to one of the most classic issues of young justice where they fight her. And it's so funny. It's one of the funniest issues written by Mark Wade, where she ends up being topless. And it's so funny because they're fighting they're because they're, they're, they're as young justice when they were the younger iteration of these characters were fighting this very big breasted woman and the entire joke throughout the entire comic was they were distracted by her big breasts and so yeah. to open up this issue with the mighty endowed i i i think it's awesome it's awesome because i i got I got most, I'm pretty sure I own, if not every issue, 90% of the issues of Young Justice. I love this. And kudos to, uh, Fitz, uh, to Fitz Martin for incorporating her. I'm actually kind of surprised that she did because it's, it's kind of refreshing because it's kind of a little bit politically incorrect. It's not, it's maybe a little bit in your face, but I kind of like it. The Pyrian fanboy, it's for, it's fun and they're awkward and they're, and and they even, you can tell that they kind of remember her and it's like, do you remember her being this angry though? <laughs> it's like, I mean, I just love the dialogue here. So I get the impression that the Fitzmartin had a, had a lot of fun uh, with the dialogue and writing this. And I, I had a lot of fun reading it. It was, it was an, it brought back a nice memory and, uh, you know, sorry to interrupt, but it was, it's, it's such a great, uh, that was, that was my favorite part of the issue. I, I'm instantly in love with this issue and I'm really curious to see where it ends up going after this. Yeah. I mean, the other part of it is you have a female artist and so, you know, maybe if she's nude, it, it kind of sells that idea of her being well endowed, but it doesn't really come across. I mean, she doesn't look even as well endowed as like power girl, for example. <laughs> so, uh, but whatever. I mean, it, it definitely works. And I enjoyed this issue, even though, like I said, I've never read any Young Justice. Um, I, I <laughs> It's Cassie Sadsmark's sort of trying to solve the mystery of these guys disappearing. And so I couldn't help but think of Trial of the Amazons. Is this a thing DC Editorial is trying to turn Cassie Sandsmark into somewhat of a detective? Uh, maybe it'll maybe it'll work better here than it does in Trial of the Amazons. But I thought this was a fun story. 
Uh, I really appreciated Cassie's uh, words as well uh, in, in terms of the, the word balloons. She, she's the one that narrates the issue. And yeah. I love the fact that, you know, it's red dialogue boxes with yellow letters from Pat Brosso. Very, you know, Wonder Girl-esque. So it worked for me on that level as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. What else do you have to add? Anything? Uh, yeah. Well, there, there was one line in this issue that sums it up for me. And at one point when uh, when Connor and Impulse and 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 Tim Drake are they're they're sort of trapped. They're, they're they've discovered they're in this this past and their idealistic past. They are for us readers, for the majority of readers, they're actually in a certain part of the Young Justice's past that represented, frankly, the high watermark of the popularity of Young Justice. And I don't think there are many people that would disagree with me on that in terms of sales, in terms of popularity. And Connor actually says. As he looks around, he says, uh, maybe we are back to how things should be. And and I, I can't help as a reader to wonder that as well, because I have to tell you, I can't remember all the continuity glitches. I can't remember every aspect of the Young Justice history and continuity. I can't. And, I, and I've read, I probably read 90% of the issues. So maybe there is something off with the continuity in this issue. I, I couldn't really get, you know, they, they talked about, I mean, the thing is, all these characters have died before. Impulse, a future version of him has already died. Uh, Tim Drake has died before. Connor Kent has died before. These characters are characters that have died. In fact, Cassie Sandsmark even jokes in this issue about how she gets frustrated with them and says an offhand comment. She's like, I wish some of them stayed dead. You know, she was joking. But it sort of underscores the frustration that even perhaps some of us readers have that this is, this is all of these characters if you talk almost universally, you talk to any DC comics fan and e even the ones, even like yourself, I suspect who maybe you haven't read a lot of Young Justice, but it's, it's kind of hard. It's hard not to like the concept because when the characters are young and, and there's something about it that these were fun characters and it was a fun concept. And uh, the reason why nobody was a big fan of Bendis' Young Justice run was because it wasn't really those same characters. It just wasn't the same, completely different feel. And so to get this back, and I got to tell you, I can't overemphasize the importance of having the mighty endowed in this issue because this immediately set the tone for me. This tells me that this is the classic Young Justice. And I hope, I hope it isn't just, you know, a, a giant tease and they go out. They don't that that they deviate too much. I personally would love for them to stay in whatever world they're in and have some fun here. This is six issues long. I hope Fitz Martin has a lot of fun with it, and uh, you know, give us a really good story here because I think that Fitz Martin. I, I wasn't too impressed with her Tim Drake story uh, that she did for Pride. There, let her show off her storytelling skills where she can focus on story as opposed to exploring the identity of one of the characters. So. Uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean I, I, I think I want her to show off her storytelling abilities because she clearly has an understanding of humor. There was humor here. This was a fun issue. She did a really good job here. And I much prefer this to anything she's done previous. Yeah, I thought uh, – I'm glad you commented on the how they sort of very meta. Well, we've died before. You know, it's why – nobody knows. And Joshua Williamson's, you know, done it a lot. In uh, in the lead up to uh, Dark Crisis, why why nobody's that worried about it, these characters being dead? Because they've all been dead before. Everybody's died and come back. It's so it's so tropey at this point. So I'm glad that they kind of address that. Uh, all right, up next we have Duo Number Two from writer Greg Pak. Pencils are by Koi Fam. Inks by Scott Hanna. 
Colors by Chris Sotomayor, letters by Janice Shang. Uh, this is in the Milestone universe. First issue, we saw this uh, these two scientists merge along with nanites, and that's where this issue uh, picks up. Thus, the title duo. What do you think? Uh, I, you know, the Milestone universe uh, taking place on Earth M. Uh, I enjoy this. I, I, I'm enjoying this. This is uh, this is an interesting, I, I know nothing about, you know, again, I'm, I'm milestone. I consider myself very new to the milestone universe and I love the alternate. Uh, I love cover a and cover B. It was gorgeous. I mean, the, these lead characters, David and Kelly, they're basically merged. And the, when this, when their husband and wife, when, when Kelly was killed, uh, she was killed while she she had already had a nanites injected in her body. So when she was killed, her nanites merged with her husband, uh, David. And meanwhile, there are these group of immortals called the Immutables, uh, led by this character named Morian. And uh, this, uh, led by this character named, uh, pardon me, led by this character named Marius. And Marius believes that David and Kim are a great threat to the Immutables. And so... Now the I, the impression I got is that the immutables are sort of they're like these immortal group of superpowered beings in the milestone universe, and for and I'm not sure why they consider potentially Duro to be a threat. Uh, but what's the the bulk of this second issue is that and similar to what uh, I think Willingham is doing for Fables, I, I think uh, writer Greg Pack here is still sort of sort of setting the chess pieces on the board. That we're still getting to know these characters. The bulk of this issue is, uh, and this is where I really got to give the artist uh, Koi Pham a lot of credit, because the way that he visually conveys the merging of the minds uh, b- between David and Kelly it's very interesting. I thought it, I thought it visually it, it, it works. And, uh, because you can almost tell it's almost like the characters, like David is almost on, he's almost like he's walking on a brain and there's darkness on the brain and it's Kelly's face is, is sort of imbued in various re- crevices of, of the brain tissue and conveying the idea that she's, that their minds are, are merged. It's his body, but their minds are merged and she can kind of control his body at some point and sometimes control what he says. And this issue sort of gives the readers, we get some ideas to how their powers work. And what I like what uh, Greg Pack has done is that we, the readers are learning about Duo's powers just as Duo is. So we're learning in real time, just as they are. And it's, it's done to great effect and it's, it's uh, it's done re- really well. Meanwhile, they don't really know what's going on, uh, and they end up, uh, you know, as they're trying to figure out what's going on and learn their powers, they end up going. Literally, David, uh, technically Kelly is the one who died because David's body was still intact. So David, to the outside world, Kelly was killed, but David wasn't. They end up going to their own. David ends up going to Kelly's funeral, and. Um, uh, and that's where we, we meet this detective Maya who's investigating, who's investigating Kelly's murder. And of course she's, and, and ironically enough, a person of interest in, in who murdered Kelly is of course, David himself. Of course, David can't say, uh, don't worry guys. My, you know, don't worry detective. My, my, my wife is merged with me. Well, that's not going to fly. So it's uh, very interesting. Very well done. Meanwhile, uh, Greg Pack infuses a lot of humor here. I like that, uh, 
clearly David and Kelly love each other. Uh, Kelly teases David. She she's a little bit jealous of the way to, to how she perceives Detective Maya checking out her husband, and and she can actually feel have the same sort of physical feelings that she knows what her husband is feeling, and he can tell what she's feeling. And if, if David pinches himself, Kelly will feel it. Uh, so it's uh, it's very it's very interesting. Very I think very well done. You got into the I got I feel like I got to know these characters, David and Kelly, and I'm interested and I'm I have a vested interest in wanting what's uh, I, I care about what's happen happens to them, and this is just in the in the in the second issue, and um, uh, I don't I think last issue I, I I maybe googled what these characters actually were originally called, but I I don't know. All I know is that I'm really interested in this. I don't know. Um, I don't know where it's going. I, I don't. I don't know where this is going. I, I want to know who these immutables are. Why are these group of seemingly immortal beings called calling themselves the immutables? What do they have to do with anything? What do they have to do with the plot? Why do they want them dead? How could Duo possibly be a danger to these immortal beings led by this person named Morian? There's still so many questions I have. I don't have the answers to it, but I'm really curious to know. Uh, what what the future holds uh, for these characters? Uh, shout out to colors by Chris Zadamoya. Uh, the the coloring very well done. I thought is you know again I was impressed. I really liked the cover too. Uh, the cover with the image of of Kelly Kelly's uh, face, multiple images of Kelly's face surrounding her husband uh, David. I thought was uh, just a, a gorgeous cover, and a cover B is really great as well with uh, purple and the offset with her sort of like melting or sort of like fading and, and misting away, uh, sort of uh, as a good uh, symbolism of of nanites or or. You know, just the, the psychological element of the story. I think I think this was actually one of the better representations on a cover as to what is actually psychologically going on in the content of the story. So overall, I, I got to say this was, <laughs> again, Milestone. This is one of the more impressive uh, individual issues. Yeah, to be clear, uh, this is a new concept. There was no duo. They're not based oh. on anybody from, from Milestone back in the day. So okay. if, uh, if you're... If you're a reader and you've been wondering, hey, can I can I pick up this milestone stuff and and hit the ground running without having read the old stuff? I think all the milestone titles do a really good job of um, of making them new reader friendly, but this one especially. And DC has come out and said that they they have no plans to have any of the the new concepts that they're introducing in the milestone line interact with any of the older stuff. You know, as opposed to we'll talk about it when we do the milestones in history, how there's a tease for uh, an icon and a hardware crossover. For now, there's no plans on Duo interacting with any of the other concepts that are out there. So, yeah, um, what stands out for me in this story, and Rocky kind of touched on it in terms of being interested in the characters, Great Pac, in, in a very short period of time, you know, only two issues, what he does is he, he presents an intimate look at who these characters are. And anybody who's in a relationship <laughs> will immediately do what I did, I, I think. You're going to read this and you're like, oh, my wife kind of knows my thoughts or, you know, if, if I'm looking at another woman or, you know, I mean, we're all human, right? You have physiological reactions when you see a woman that has some of those traits that you find physically attractive, you know, and, and man, the last thing I would want is the, my wife in my head going, oh, she's got nice legs or I like her hair or whatever, you know? Because uh, you, you feel bad. Obviously, you, you commit to one person that spend the rest of your life with them, and you, you don't want to make them feel bad. 
David doesn't have that luxury anymore. His wife, you know, lives in his body and vice versa. Like, you know, if he sees a guy that has the traits that his wife finds attractive or, or the traits that she might wish that David exhibited, you know, she's got no place to hide. She's got no place to hide those things because they're merged. And I just, God, you know, it's almost like, what's your worst nightmare? <laughs> what's your worst nightmare? Having your thoughts there for your, you know, your other uh, significant other to, you know, to read and understand and hear, you don't want to make them feel bad. You care about them or what have you. So you can't help, at least I couldn't when I read it, put myself in David's shoes and just think, man, what a tremendous challenge. Um, and they're not always getting along in this issue, but for the most part they are, but you, you can see the seeds planted for later on. What, what if they're not, what if something horrible happens or David decides, you know, I'm going to do this thing that, Kelly 100% is against, you know, we've seen her be able to control his body at some point. Are they going to fight over the body? Like there's seeds planted for, um, for some animosity or, or some real sort of tug of war over the, the physical body. And you feel bad for Kelly that she doesn't have that physical body anymore. So yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of seeds here for really great storytelling. Um, I think Greg Pak is a very underrated writer. Uh, he hasn't been doing a whole lot of big two work in the last you know few years, so I'm glad to see him back. I'm glad to see him doing this because this is working on a lot of levels for me. Um, the Koi Fam art, I didn't enjoy it in the second issue as much as I did in the first issue. I didn't think the art was as clean, but it still works really, really well. I especially enjoyed the scenes where uh, Kelly and David are talking uh, in, I, I guess, in what David pictures his own mind as uh, in a lot of ways. It's definitely some sort of mindscape. So I think it, that works as well. Uh, probably where it works, the, the art works the best. So uh, yeah, I think this is, uh, if you're curious and about the milestone universe and you want to jump on, but you're like, eh, I, I just don't feel comfortable reading hardware icon or static. Cause I never read the other stuff. Pick this up because there's no other stuff. There's no previous milestone um, analog or, or, a series for duo so you can pick this up and and feel like you're not missing out on anything from back in the day uh okay up next we have the flash number 783 this is from writer jeremy adams Ammon k Nawalpen is the artist jeremy cox on colors rob lee on letters oh my god this was such a fantastic issue i mean we we've had jeremy adams on the show he's specifically talked about wanting to make his flash run uh, very all ages friendly. Um, you know, he talks about how a lot of the DC titles are sort of tough to, uh, to get into. If you're a, a younger reader or you're not, you know, reading everything and how he always wants to make his title very accessible. Now this is a dark crisis tie-in. And my argument would be that even though it's a dark crisis tie-in, this is still really new reader friendly. You get all the information you need with gorgeous art by Noel Pan. And like, not only does Noel Pan do really great art, he covers all these different eras, right? We've got some of the art, which looks like old school comic where you could see the color dots um, because it's Barry Allen and Iris West when they were married. And it harkens back to, you know, the sixties and, what have you, because what's happening here, we know Barry Allen is, is sort of lost in, in the DC multiverse and Wally gets together a, a, you know, a bunch of the flash family and they're going to go out in, uh, in, into the speed force slash multiverse and look for Barry. 
And so as different members of the Flash family go to different parts of the multiverse, uh, Noel Pan sort of changes his art style to suit wherever they uh, they are, including this Silver Age idealized version of the DC universe with Barry and Wally as Kid Flash back in the day and uh, Iris West there married to uh, to uh, to Barry. So uh, it, it's just fantastic. This is one of those books where it reminds you of what DC Comics where they came from and what they could be. It's not super convoluted. Again, even though it's tied into Dark Crisis, the fact that Barry's missing and that aspect of the story ties into Dark Crisis, it sort of doesn't matter to the story that Adam seems to be telling here, at least not right now. It may tie in very much more as the story goes on to Dark Crisis. But, you know, Barry could be missing for any number of reasons. All What matters is the characterization that Jeremy Adams gives Wally, which is very, you know, traditional and in the same vein that Mark Wade did and Jeff Johns did. And uh, the other characters, uh, Mr. Terrific, Linda Park's characterization, all that again, feels very authentic and very real. And you just end up with this really, really fun comic. Um, and honestly, you know, Jeremy was on the show and talked about how he has all these ideas for other books. And I'm like, DC, please give this guy at least one more book a month to read uh, or to write because he gets it. Jeremy Adams gets what the DC universe is supposed to feel like. Like his his book feels more like a Jeff Johns aesthetic than any other writer that I can remember in recent time. You know, uh, Jeff Johns is a hugely popular writer when it comes to DC books because – and I know it's sort of a four-letter word sometimes for, you know, DC fans, you guys get tired of hearing us say it, but DC should be a universe that's filled with hope. Yes, bad things happen, but at the end of the day, there's this aspirational and inspirational feel to the universe. It's why I always say when the Superman books are going really well, that I know the DC universe is going really well because Superman should be an inspirational and aspirational character. So when his books are going that way, that sort of infuses the whole line. So I just, that's what Jeremy Adams does. And I know it's high praise to compare him to Jeff Johns, and I'm not saying he's Jeff Johns. What I'm saying is he gets that closer to that Jeff Johns aesthetic than any other writer that I've read in, in a long time. And I really wish DC would let him write more than one book. Like I'd love him on a Green Lantern book. Uh, I'd love him on Superman. Um I think he'd do fantastic on Justice League. And, you you know, DC, you want new readers? He keeps it new reader friendly. He manages to do all this and and like, much like Jeff Johns, really mine the, the past history and past stories of the DC universe really, really well. But yet he keeps it new reader friendly. He, I just think he's a fantastic writer. So underrated in my mind. Doesn't get near enough credit for how fantastic this Flash run is. This is the best Flash run in decades. And I wasn't one of those people that didn't like what Jeff uh, or what Joshua Williams did. I liked a, a lot of what Joshua Williams did. Um, but to me, this surpasses it. Uh, it really does. And I mean, I haven't been this excited about the flash book since Robert Venditti was on the title. Um, but, I, but I think Adams does even a better job than, than Venditti. Sorry, Rob. <laughs> but I mean, this is the best flash run to me since Jeff Johns was on the book. It, it really is. 
Um, and, and even the Jeff Johns run itself toward the end got a little, especially with the flashpoint, obviously there was a reason for that. They wanted to reset the DC universe, but even the Jeff Johns run got, you know, less positive as it went on. There was a lot of negativity in, you know, toward the end. And again, reasons for that, but man, uh, this really truly for me is the best flash run in, in decades. So I know you've been enjoying it too, Rocky. I don't. I, I wasn't as excited about it as you were at first, but as it's gone on, Adams has completely won me over because it's consistent, month in, month out. It never wavers. It's fantastic. It's fun. Like I'm thinking back to the issue that Jeremy Adams wrote with his his daughter. I think it was. Yeah. The Irie and and I mean. The, the the issue where you had to turn it, you had to blow. You had, I mean, it's just it's <laughs> Doctor fun. Fate, yeah, yeah. The, I mean, just month in and month out, this title is just so good, so good. Yeah, he, well, he's not af- he's not afraid to do something different. He's not afraid to have fun with it. And you know, Jeremy Adams, uh, you, you mentioned Jeff Johns quite a bit there, and uh, you know. Even before Jeremy Adams collaborated with Jeff Johns, and he's collaborating with Jeff Jeff Johns along with Tim Sheridan uh, for uh, Flashpoint uh, Beyond, and uh, that's a very good title as well. And, but Jeremy Adams was showing signs of, of of capturing some small amounts of Jeff Johns sensibilities, and and he keeps he keeps getting better here and. And I'm not going to uh, – I think the, the jury is still out in terms of me ranking Jeremy Adams because I, I still have – I still love Mark Wade and, and Grant Morrison's flash runs with I, – with, I, love, I, I love those runs. Uh, Jeff Johns is actually – I'm not, not a huge fan of Jeff Johns' flash run and that's the irony here. I actually do prefer Jeremy Adams so far. He's, he's outclassing Jeff Johns on the flash. Uh, we, I, I suspect you and I are both probably in the minority on that. But in any event, it doesn't really matter. I mean, they're all damn good. They're all good, whether it's Mark Wade, Grant Morrison, <laughs> uh, Jeff Johns, Jeremy Adams. Wow. Uh, what a, I mean, that's like, that's like loving fruit and having to choose between an apple and an orange and a banana and a, and whatever, a mango. I mean, good luck. They're, they're all good. Um, but this, this is a lot of fun. And Jeremy Adams is, you know, he, he's linking everything. Everything's coming full circle. When Je- Jeremy Adams first came on the scene, his first uh, se- series set of uh, Flash uh, issues had to do with uh, Flash, with Wally West being sort of uh, lost in different parts of the time. And we got, he was in World War II and he was in the future and he was all over the place. And and during that period of time, Mr. Terrific developed a way to sort of like track the flashes and, and to sort of like figure out a, a speed force fingerprint of each individual flash. And I'm oversimplifying it because I don't want to try to pretend to talk like Mr. Terrific, but suffice to say that uh, Mr. Terrific is essentially, he tells the Flash family here, he tells uh, Wally West, Max Mercury, Jesse Quick, Wallace West, we calls, calls him Ace, and Jay Garrick, he tells him, look, there's a way that we could track Barry Allen, because I think we can track him because of, of his unique Speed Force fingerprint. Uh, but it, uh, but we've uh, but it's sort of like having a an identical phone number but with different area codes. He's tracked down three different Barry Allens in the multiverse, and so uh, he, Mr. Terrific uh, creates tracking devices in the form of watches that he says, throw on these watches, go, and one of these Barry Allens is going to be the right Barry Allen that we're looking for, and then bring them home. So in typical comic book fashion, which is awesome, in all the right ways, it sounds so simple. Not a problem. Throw on the t- Speed Force watches, go find the right Barry Allen, and bring them home. Of course, this being a Flash story, you got to have some drama. <laughs> and, uh, Linda, of course, is still struggling to try to tell Wally, by the way, I have super speed powers as well. 
Uh, but she never gives, has a chance to tell him that because lo and behold, uh, the kids, Jay and Irie, show up at the lab. They grab the watches and they get they take off into the Speed Force because they want it. They want to be heroes too, just like their dad. And Mister Mister Terrific says, "Look, well, we can we can track them, but they're gonna have to." If they were listening, they gotta they gotta activate the watch themselves in order to come back, so I can pull them back into into our realm. But in the in the in, in any event, they're sort of like they end up they end up in a in one of the realms where one of the Barry Allens is, and they end up um, they end up in a place where there is uh, Allen Tower, and so it appears to be a world where this Barry Allen is sort of like an Elon Musk or a Bill Gates. He's got his own tech company and this Barry Allen is is he's got Allen tech and it reminded me of uh back to the future too right yeah Biff's got his giant casino yeah Yeah. no it's very well done it's that's what's it's got that cool factor and then the the then the other realm uh it ends it looks like a Mad Max where Barry Allen is is a Mad Max character driving a vehicle uh doesn't seem to have speed powers but he he loves driving fast but in a car like Fast and Furious Mad Max it's pretty cool and uh and then of course there uh the other iteration of Barry was with Barry Allen with Iris Allen the same on the same world where uh that we saw in Justice League Incarnate where I believe it's Pariah's world where uh or some iteration of it where Barry Allen is is close to, to Iris uh because I'm I'm pretty sure that's the same Barry Allen that that Justice League incarnate uh encountered in the in the final issue or one of the final issues of Justice League incarnate leading into uh Justice League 75 and ultimately Dark Crisis number 1 so uh so w- Wally and uh Ace Wally and uh Wallace West they they're in the, the world where where one of the, the Barry Allen with Iris is there, and meanwhile Jay and Irie are in Allen Tech world, and and Mad Max and uh, oh, pardon me the I believe Jay Garrick and Max Mercury are, are in the uh, Mad Max uh, world of what I'm calling the Mad Max version of uh, of uh, Barry Allen. So uh, yeah, this is a lot of fun. This is a lot of fun. And my favorite scene is, uh, I love the fact that, uh, you know, Linda's struggling to tell uh, Wally about her, the fact that she has powers. Uh, there's a fantastic scene where Wally pulls on his mask and says, I'll be back with the kids, Linda, the kids, Barry, all of them. That's a flash fact. And it just looks so cool. Then pulling the mask on, determined as hell, and you know he's going to do it. Uh, it just looks, this is just a, a lot of fun. I love the cover. The cover here is fantastic. Cover A, uh, I love, to me, cover A's should be the best of all the covers. I don't care how many variants they have, how many ratio variants they have, whatever. To me, cover A, the fans, the, the fans that buy the regular price comic deserve the best cover. That's the way it should be. That's my bias. And uh, and that's exactly what we get here for $3.99. Keep it at $3.99, DC. This is great. Uh, like, like I said, uh, I'm enjoying this. Uh, the, 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 there's an opening image here with, uh, Barry Allen seemingly killing, uh, reverse flash or fighting him. That looks just amazing. And, uh, it's, it's very well done. And it's, if you're, if you've been following Jeremy Adams, the flash up to this point, you, you know, this is an easy jumping on point. Uh, it's because it's action packed. It's fun riddled with, uh, 
you know what the stakes are. You know they're looking for Barry Allen. Everybody knows that Barry Allen's been missing anyway, even if you're even even if you're not that familiar with the DC universe. Surprise, surprise, Barry Allen's lost in the speed force again. So it's it's easy to that's all you need to know, really. And it's a lot of fun. So yeah, I this is uh you know, another great issue this week, another great comic. Yeah, I mean Jeremy Adams is just he's just killing it. That's so good. And the art by Noel Penn again. I mean, the fact that he's given us fantastic art and he's having to change his style. I mean, just fantastic work. So, uh, okay. Up next, we have the first issue of uh, a new mini Aquaman and the flash of void song, uh, book one overture for silent Armageddon. This is written by Colin Kelly and Jack- Jackson Lansing art is by Vasco, uh, Gregov and the art, uh, was really blown away. I haven't heard of Vasco before, but I thought the art was fantastic. Colors are by Rain Barreto. Colors are by, or sorry, letters by Troy Petrie. Um, it doesn't say it's black label, so I'm assuming it's in continuity, fits in somewhere. Um, yeah. I mean, well, it doesn't look era. like the shape. The, the, the covers, the, the, the shape of the cover looks like a standard comic book. It doesn't look like black label and it doesn't have the label, so. Yeah, but not all the black labels are the oversized because when they did That's um, true. J- uh, l- last night on Earth, the Batman, Greg Capullo, when they specifically wanted it to be regular size because all their other Batman work had been regular size. But regardless, this appears to be in continuity, but apparently it happened during the, the satellite era of the Justice League. But Flash has his uh, his new 52 uh, version of his costume. So I don't, don't think about it too much. Just <laughs> read the story because it's pretty solid. What do you think? Uh, yeah, you know what? I was look. I, I, I full confession. I went in inclined not to like this because I went in assuming this was going to be like another uh, deep target experience. And because I'm not a real, I, I was really disappointed with the Green Arrow Aquaman crossover deep target. Uh, despite the best efforts of writer uh, uh, Brandon Thomas on that, I thought it was disappointing, very disjointed. It didn't really feel connected to the, the mainstream DC universe in any way. It just seemed really, really odd. The, the, the story itself, the characters, everything was just really, really off. And so I went in predisposed to thinking this was just going to be another throwaway story that was kind of boring. And and honestly, uh, Kelly and Lansing on the writing, uh, I've always found them to be good soldiers. So Kelly and Lansing are writers where if, if a story, if, if a series is about to be ended or canceled, they'll put Kelly and Lansing on it to write the last few issues. That's always been my experience with them now and 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 they're good soldiers like they're they can write good stories just not memorable ones so that's just my opinion and uh but again that's they're they're good soldiers when it comes to writing uh and i much to my surprise i actually thought this was a great premise a heck of a lot better than deep target was because i what i like about this is uh it because the central conceit is well how do you how do you take all the justice league members off the playing field and you only have a situation where you're relying on the Flash and Aquaman. And goddamn, Kelly and Lansing do a good job of, of making me believe that this is believable. And w- basically what it is is that it's, uh, it star- starts off, you know, we, it starts off showing uh, the planet, it looks like the, patterns, the uh, planet Saturn. Uh, and it's, you know, it's five hours and it's four hours and three hours. And... Ultimately, as this as this alien force gets bigger and bigger and closer to Earth, four hours, three hours, two hours, and uh, one hour, and eventually it's it's going to be, and then it's got impact. It impacts the Earth, and 
just as it impacts the earth, this alien invasion, it's at the precise moment where the flash is within the speed force and Aquaman has just recently been attacked and seemingly defeated by Black Manta and he's in the deep, deep ocean. And so this sonic blast that was that that initiated this alien invasion, ultimately, the only reason why uh, and, and this is this is an invasion where it sort of takes it's it mind controls every life form on Earth, including the Justice League, but it doesn't impact Flash because he's protected because he's within the speed force. And Aquaman is so deep in the ocean, they theorize that this attack has a depth, is limited as to the depth of the in, inside the Earth that it can go. So Aquaman was protected by the depths of the ocean. And so when Aquaman resurfaces and Flash comes out of the speed force, they discover an Earth where it's almost like invasion of the body snatchers. Everyone's been taken over and they're not really sure what to do. And, um, uh, but the, the, the visuals here are, are really good. And I want to give, uh, um, my apologies. I should give a shout out to the Georgie, Georgie V. I think it's Vasco Gregov. I think is how you pronounce it. Oh, Oh, Vasco. Great. Yeah, Vasco's his first name, and I think it's Gregov. It's, well, it's Russian, like, obviously. Okay, well, it's G-E-O-R. It looks like Georgiev. Geor- or maybe it's Georgiev or something. But uh, was it spelt different? I don't know. Vasco. looks like Vasco Georgiev. But in any event, the the art here, uh, I thought, really worked. Uh, it, it worked. I... I, I'm I'm not familiar with his art, but the way he draws uh, Flash and Iris West, uh, I, I you know I quite liked it. I thought it was uh, he, he uh, kudos to Kelly Lansing. They nailed the relationship between Barry Allen and Iris Allen quite well. I uh, the art was really good. The 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 antagonism and the and the rapport between Mira and Aquaman is quite good. Uh, she's, uh, I never got any visions of Amber Heard as I read this. So that's probably a good thing. And, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was well done. I thought well-established, good characterization, good setup for the issue. And, uh, you know, uh, it's a good setup. It's, it's just a good setup and it's believable because the most important thing here is how are you going to make me believe that the Justice League is taken off the table and good Lord, you got to rely on Aquaman, and Flash to save the Earth, this actually works. And I'm actually intrigued by it. And there's no time travel shenanigans. This is just a good old-fashioned alien invasion with uh, really good art, uh, great uh, great action sequences, and uh, like the, the coloring is really great as well. And, um, you know, the, the <laughs> Aquaman and, and Flash, I, I never think of, I've never thought of these two as being in a team up before. So this right away, that just sort of threw me off flash and Aquaman. I just don't think of these two as getting along very well. And actually they don't, I don't think they are, they're naturally a good fit for each other. And that is even played a little bit in their characters. I think Kelly and Lansing nailed the, these characters quite well. And I thought it was fun and I'm looking forward to see where this goes. And uh, I don't know. This is book one. Is this, do you know, is this, did you say before, is this two or three issues or six or what? Is uh, I don't, I don't know how many issues it doesn't say. Um, Cause this is 51 know. issues. This is 50 pages. Sorry. This is 50 pages. This opening issue. Yeah. I th- again, I, th- I thought That's it huge. worked really well. I mean, it might, my favorite thing about it might be the art. I mean, again, I don't, not familiar with Greg Oliver. 
Georgiev or however you pronounce his name. Apologies. <laughs> Not familiar with him, uh, like I said, but I thought the art was fantastic. I love the, uh, like you said, the way he draws, I think you said Flash and Iris. Iris. I, I like the way he drew Mira and Aquaman, especially their, their costumes. So, um, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's interesting that, you know, the Void, the void song uh, refers to the fact that when Aquaman and Flash kind of come back from their various remote locations and find everybody taken over, everybody's standing around kind of frozen with their mouths open, their eyes blacked out and they're singing us, they're singing a song. Um, so that's, you know, apparently it's aliens from the void uh, and they've taken over these people and they're, they're all singing a song. So, uh, you know, a little bit tropey when it comes to the sort of the, the central idea of the story. Um, I agree with Rocky that Lansing and Kelly, they, they have been asked many times to kind of fill in at the last moment on this thing or that thing. Oftentimes, as he mentioned, when something's coming to, to an end, they've come up with plenty of great things on their own. Um, and so, I, you know, I'm glad they're getting a chance to, to do this. Um, yeah. Where, where it's, you know, they're getting to tell their story from start to finish. They're not having to pick up the threads of somebody else's story. So yeah, between the, the fantastic art and the, the interesting story, I'm, I'm all in on this. I was very, very impressed. Didn't know what to think. Um, it was like, I, I kind of had not necessarily a bad taste in my mouth, but I wasn't again, much, much like Rocky. Um, some of the other crossover stuff that we've had, recently uh, especially the the aquaman green arrow as you mentioned it was it was just okay it was just average it, it wasn't you know it, it wasn't bad it wasn't great maybe won't be memorable in the long run i feel like this is one that i'll remember like this is one i'm excited to read uh can't wait to see what happens next so uh all right up next you're gonna have to bear with me here because they didn't give us a consolidated credits page but it's uh, milestones in history. We've got uh, a lot of pages here uh, in this particular book, um, 93 pages, <laughs> including the covers. Uh, and it's a lot of different stories. Uh, so the first one is a story about Lucy, who was a, a primate that's sort of a, an evolutionary ancestor of the human race. Her story is written by Alice Randall. Eric Battles, the artist. Ava De La Cruz on colors and world design does the letters. Uh, the next story is uh, about the Queen of Sheba, which is almost a myth at this point, um, but it's written by Amy Chu, Maria Laura Sanapo does the art, Michael Atea on colors, Carlos M. Mangual does the letters. The third story is about Hannibal, uh, the, the famous general who took uh, elephants over the, um, over the, was it the Alps? Uh, anyway. Yeah. yeah, the Appalachian attacked, Mountains, yeah. 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 Yeah, attacked uh, Rome from the supposed uh, unattackable direction. Uh, that story is written by Stephen Barnes. Ron Wilson does the pencils on that. Ron Wilson, known mostly for his Marvel work on Thing back in the day, um, doesn't do a lot of comics work now. When I saw this, these pencils, I was like, why Why isn't Ron Wilson still working in comics? Like, oh my God, he's so good. Especially, again, not to badmouth anybody, but we get some pretty rough art sometimes. Uh, and here's this guy who can, you know, maybe he's, he's not at a point where he can do a monthly book anymore, but man, put him on a mini or something. His, his pencils really blew me away. Mike uh, Gustavich did the inks, Michael Tay on colors and world design on letters. So that was a really great story. The next one talks about um, Alexander Pushkin, who actually is a descendant of Hannibal. 
Um, so, I, you know, again, and I'll talk about this when I get to the book, but I really was impressed by a lot of these stories. Uh, again, they're all about all real people, historic people, thus the title Milestones in History. Alice Randall is the writer, Don Hudson on pencils, Jose Marzon Jr. on inks, Andrew Dollhouse on colors, and Josh Reed on letters. Uh, the next story uh, is about Alexander Dumas, um, who a lot of people will know mostly as the writer of Three Musketeers. Um, it's This story is written by, I'm going to mispronounce this and I apologize, Tananarivdu, T-A-N-A-N-A-R-I-V-E-D-U-E, a last name Du. Um Apologies uh, for mispronouncing that first name. It's just I have no clue uh, how to say it correctly. Jamal Eigel is um, the artist on it. Chris Sotomayor on colors and world design on letters. Um, you know, again, Count of Monte Cristo, Three Musketeers, um, and, and you know, story you know about the, the author behind those uh, those stories, who many people may not realize was uh, was a person of color. Uh, the next story is called Ace. It's the story of this man named Eugene Ballard, who uh, was born um, to slaves, basically, uh, or born as a slave, um, or to, to people who were slaves. And uh, again, back in the South in that time, very uh, oppressed and managed to make his way to France and make a really good life for himself. Then got drawn into world war one, eventually became a pilot fought against uh, the red Baron. So uh, just a, a really good story uh, again of, of somebody who I think most people don't, don't know his story. So it's, it's great to see it shared here. Uh, next up we have spirit step from Karen Parsons. She's the artist on it. Um, if that name sounds familiar, she played uh, the sister in the, the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, um, so not really a fan of that show. But apparently, that's who she is. Francesco Francavilla does the art and role design on letters. And that story of this woman who uh, was interested in uh, voodoo and um, Haitian rituals and whatnot. Controversy is the next story, and it's about Prince, the uh, musical legend. Uh, Touré is the writer. Ray Anthony Height does the art. Dan Brown on colors. Carlos M. Manguel on letters. Uh, next story is sort of the story of, of two uh, pioneering women in aviation. Uh, it's written by Melody Cooper. Domo Stanton does the art. Emilio Lopez on colors. Steve Wands on letters. Um, and again, it, the story of two different women. Bessie Coleman, who was born in 1892. She was really the, f the first woman uh, aviator and, and inspired a lot of people, including um, the woman that the uh, the rest of the story is about, Mae Jemison, who was born in 1956 in Alabama during civil rights uh, uh, movement, and you know remembers as a young child Martin Luther King riots and, and that sort of thing, and uh, her being inspired by uh, by the uh, by the aforementioned. Uh, Bessie Coleman to become a, a pilot and eventually an astronaut. And she was even on an episode of Star Trek, the next generation, uh, which I thought was really awesome. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, just to, to honor her. And then at the end, we've got uh, a story that leads actually into comics uh, that's written by Reginald Hudlin, uh, Hudlin rather, and Leon Chills, pencils by Dennis Cowan, inks by John Stanisey, and letters by uh, Justin Birch, uh, with colors by Chris Sotomayor. Uh, and it's it's a hardware breaking into a secret government installation because apparently he wants some information about Icon and thinks he's stealing Icon's spaceship. It turns out to be something far, far different than that. And we're told that that story is going to continue in Icon versus hardware. So again, tons of creators on this, almost 100 pages. For the vast majority of the, the issue, it's telling these stories and, and history of these real-life people, persons of color. And you know, I consider myself pretty well educated, you know, like I did really well in school all the way up through high school, you know, went to college. Um, and I didn't realize, and I guess I just never stopped to think about it, how many of these historical figures were, were persons of color, right? Like, you know, you think about where supposedly human, um, or I shouldn't say supposedly, but where humans as a species started, right? Like in Ethiopia, they call it, you know, the cradle of man or what have you, where we, you know, eventually evolved from, uh, from apes and everybody was a person of, of color back then, you know, and it was only through years of evolution and people living in places where there wasn't as much sun that people, some people became more light skinned. And we certainly have, you know, much more in common with people of different skin tones than, you know, some particular people would want to admit, but you know, we're all more alike, much, much more alike than we're different, right? Like 99.9999999, you know, out to however many decimal places, you know, the same as, as the next person, the variation between one person and the next in your DNA is, is minuscule. And it makes the difference of, you know, whether you're bald or you have brown hair or blue eyes or what, what have you. So um, it's really interesting to, to think about, you know, Hey, a lot of these people were persons of color. Like I had no idea that the guy that wrote three musketeers and maybe it's on me, maybe I'm the ignorant one, right. That I didn't know that that was a person of color. So uh, I enjoyed this. Uh, and I mean, I'm, I enjoy history. So maybe I'm, um, you know, not the right person to, to judge this book. Cause I do feel like is a comic, I, you know, I've thought about this a lot since I've read this last week is, is a comic the best place to tell these stories? Well, probably not. If you want the complete story, um, it can probably be told better through, through prose, or at least in, if it's going to be in comic book form in a, in a longer form, cause you know, really limited. But what this can do is introduce people to a lot of these historical figures and then kind of open up that curiosity where, Hey, let me go read a book about, you know, Alexander Dumas, or let me go find out more about, you know, Alexander Pushkin or, um, or Mae Jemison, who, you know, who's still with us or the, you know, incredible life of Eugene Ballard, uh, who, you know, came from nothing and managed to make his way to, to Paris and become a world champion boxer and then eventually open a jazz club and then give that up to be a spy for the allies in, uh, you know, in, in uh, or actually be become a, a, a pilot in World War One, and then later uh, with his jazz club, a spy against the Nazis. I mean, this guy led an incredible life and eventually became a an elevator operator. Like the whole reason his story got out there, he was an elevator operator in the building in New York city where they filmed the today show and he would wear his war medals on his, uh, on his uniform. And somebody asked him one day. Um, so, I mean, just a fascinating story. So um, I won't say what my least favorite was. I mean, they're not all great in terms of, of technical 
uh, comic book. And I, I, you know, some of these people have probably never written a comic before. So <laughs> there's a couple where the pacing felt a little off or it felt a little choppy. Um, but I enjoyed every one of them. E- you know, even that being said, I thought the art was fantastic. It's a very inspiring book in a lot of ways. Uh, and I hope people pick this up. I hope they give it a chance. Uh, I hope they don't pick it up and, and, you know, then feel sort of cheated because, Hey, I thought I was going to be reading stories about superheroes. You get a little bit of that at the end. And I am curious about the hardware and icon story. Um, but I, I just thought that this was great. Uh, just a great way to, to give these very deserving historical figures, uh, a little bit of a spotlight. And again, I hope it spurs people, hope it inspires young person, persons of color to, you know, know that, um, people that look like them and we talk about representation, how important it is, have done incredible things you know, throughout history. Uh, I hope it inspires them to, you know, to strive to be their best and to learn more about these historical figures. So, yeah, I thought it was really, really well done. Um, and I, I give a lot of credit to the, the milestone, um, the people behind milestone for, for doing this and for DC for allowing them to do it. So um, if I have, any complaint at all. I wish this had come out during black history month and they could have like promoted it as such even more. I think it would have maybe got more eyes on it. Um, but I, I thought it was great. What'd you think? Uh, yeah. I, this was, you know, I remember when I was younger, I have, I still have, I mean, they're pretty much destroyed, but I got a whole pile of classics illustrated. I loved reading history. I loved reading about the classics from the books and in comic book form. I loved reading. I would kill for something like this when I was younger. This has got nothing to do with color as far as I'm concerned. This is history. This is awesome history. This is actual real life history. I'll be honest. The one thing that I thought was jarringly out of place was the final story with, with hardware. But that was very jarring. Like, what does hardware have to do with this? This is such an, this is a great comic. This uh, this is milestones in history. This is a history lesson, beautifully drawn, and and it starts off with Icon and Rocket and Static just introducing themselves and basically giving you an idea what the book's about, and then you get these amazing stories, and 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 it's it's uh, visually this is just beautiful. You got different artistic styles, different stories, but are real down to earth, like real stories from history. The best stories are the true stories. Every life is a biography, and it just like. Um, this, these are just fantastic, great stories, and they just happen to be about happen to be uh, uh, black characters or black people in history. And uh, this is just this is just very well done. You're absolutely right that this certainly could have been part of Black History Month. Although, for what it's worth, I know Morgan Freeman always sort of you know being a black obviously he's a black person and he he sort of resents that a little bit. He says just call it History Month, and I'm inclined to agree to a certain extent because I'm a lover of history. I got one of my degrees that I did nothing with is in history. I love history, and I I I love this. I learned something reading this, and it was interesting. I mean, I might I might know more about maybe history than your average layperson, but there's still a pile I don't know. I didn't know about the Three Musketeers, about the, the Arthur being black. I didn't know that. I, I learned all kinds of things reading this, even about the, the first story about Lucy and <laughs> and the and the and the archaeology and the evolution and all, all the finer details. That that's what you can learn a lot from comic books. I mean, who says you can't learn something reading a comic book? And it's good and it's interesting. And uh, again, I, I did find it a little odd at the end that we, we suddenly jumped to hardware and I, I didn't know, 
I don't know what on earth the hardware story had anything to do even thematically with the rest of the comic. I didn't need it, but it doesn't hurt it. I'll, I'll check it out. I, I, I find hardware, you know, interestingly enough. But uh, this is one anthology that I'll absolutely pick up. I'm going to pick this up because I, I, I'm a lover of history. And I just, I, I think this is so well done. And this is a genuine showcase of great history. That's some genuine, you learn something and the characters are good. And it's, you know, if you're so inclined, you can check out the milestone characters. But you can definitely see where the inspiration comes from. And this is, this is, they're doing this right because there's nothing worse than when you are, if you want to showcase, if you showcase something, you don't have a good story showcasing it, it might come across as just sort of putting anything out there. I mean, you, you can't have a better tribute to uh, history and it, and just casting a light on just how much black culture has contributed to society than than having a comic book like this so this was this was really well done and i can't say that for all anthologies that purport to 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 be made for a cause but this one is really good yeah again super impressed really glad dc decided to do it um and yeah it's it's definitely worth picking up and uh again i hope it inspires people to learn more about these uh these historical figures so Mm. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Nightwing. We're up to issue number 93 from writer Tom Taylor. Bruno Redondo is the artist. Wade Von Grobinger on inks for pages 14 through 20. Adriana Lucas on the colors. Wes Abbott on letters. The Battle for Bloodhaven's Heart, part two. What do you think? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm starting to sound, I think all my reviews of Nightwing are, are going to start to sound the same and the same and the same every every time because this is... Uh, I just, it's it's good, and uh, you know, I, I just I I find that it, it's it's good, and this is clearly building toward what will likely be. It's it, it's great for building the character and the what's building on the relationship between Nightwing and Barbara Gordon, and uh, probably anyone who thinks that they're gonna we're gonna have a wedding in the future uh, between. Nightwing and Barbara Gordon uh, at some point around issue 100 of Nightwing. You're probably right. That's exactly what's going to happen. We have uh, great character work. You're not going to get better character work than Tom Taylor scripting uh, Barbara Gordon and, and uh, Dick Grayson continuing to fall in love. And this is clearly headed toward a wedding. I think the writing's on the wall here. And I, I predict, and it's not my prediction, everybody's been predicting this uh, since this began, for, or at least it's been, they've been hinting at it, that you know, we're not going to have a repeat of uh, Batman 50, uh, where we, we are t we're told about a wedding that doesn't take place. Uh, we're actually going to have that here. I think that's where this is headed. Um, this is uh, Blockbuster. Heartless confronts Blockbuster. And we get some interesting revelations here that Heartless, uh, Heartless, loves taking people's hearts who have who if you, if if somebody's going to miss you, Heartless, this villain, he'll take your heart because as long as you have somebody to miss you, then he's going to take your heart. Heartless's motivation is revealed here. It's been hinted at in earlier issues, but Heartless confronts Blockbuster, and because Heartless wants to tell Blockbuster, look. 
I want, uh, what is it going to cost me? I want to take over Bloodhaven. I want to take, I want to take all the hope from Bloodhaven. Nightwing is the heart of Bloodhaven. Dick Grayson represents the heart of Bloodhaven. So I want to take the heart of Bloodhaven. And by doing so, uh, he wants to take out and kill Dick Grayson. That's why he wants to, but he wants control. Heartless wants to control Bloodhaven. And of course, Blockbuster's not going to stand for that. Heartless here underestimates, much to his chagrin, <laughs> he very much underestimates Blockbuster. And while he can hold his own, we still don't know who Heartless is. Uh, but Blockbuster ends up throwing him out of the building and uh, he ends up at the end uh, b- recovering. Well, and, what's he throws him out of the building. I mean, yeah. you hear that. And he's like, yeah, I was in this bar and I got thrown out because I was too drunk. I mean, <laughs> he throws him, you know, out of the penthouse of the building out through the window uh, by smashing him with a desk. I mean, when he when Rocky says he throws him out of the wind, the building, I mean, he literally – yeah. And then Blockbuster calls Commissioner McLean and says, I need a cleanup crew on my top floor and on the street below. It's like, yeah, you probably do. But uh, uh, Heartless is fairly, fairly resilient, so he, he does not die. And uh, ultimately, it's revealed that Heartless, the, the hearts that Heartless ends up taking, he actually ends up using to continue to preserve his life. So Heartless almost has the ability to maybe he's got he's got as many lives as he has hearts that he's taken from his opponents. And so that's interesting. And juxtaposed along uh, this, this confrontation between Heartless and, and Blockbuster, we have, we have what is becoming uh, kind of uh, Tom Taylor's trademark. Well, it is his trademark. Great character moments uh, with uh, Dick Grayson letting it slip that he loves Barbara Gordon. Great dialogue. Uh, fantastic art by Bruno Redondo. I mean, this is just, just really good stuff. Uh, you know, again, if you're, if you've been with it so far and you've been enjoying this series, you're going to continue to, uh, you're going to just continue to like it. The art's just really, really good. It's, it's a little bit convenient. You know, it's maybe a little bit too convenient how he takes up some corrupt cops here. Uh, you know, Dick Grayson has a run in with, uh, cops and he's got his, uh, the, the cops, uh, the commissioner McLean wants to make a, an example and he wants to sort of get even with, uh, take some control over, uh, over what Dick Grayson has done. And so he, be, uh, they, he starts arresting the, the police start arresting the kids that are at, um, that in, in the park that, that he established where he erected, where, the Alfred Pennyworth Foundation uh, bought some land and made a park for the homeless kids in the city. Uh, the police blame all the rioting that was going on, even though the police, some of the police went undercover and, and actually did all the property damage and the rioting. And they blamed it on the kids and they, they want to start arresting the kids that are sinking sanctuary in the park that Dick Grayson created with his Alfred Pennyworth Foundation. Uh, but very conveniently, Oracle got the pictures and, you know, had cameras everywhere. And, and, and through her use of the Internet and hacking skills, she she uh, got evidence that it was actually these police officers that were working under Commissioner McLean that were actually the, the cause of all the violence. Um it's again very conveniently wrapped. You know that that part is very convenient. I mean, it's very easy to root out the corruption. Uh, it seems. Uh, I would say this as a, and this is a, this is a 
some people will think this is more of a, I would say it's a constructive criticism. Some people are very hard on Tom Taylor and they are going to say, look, this is far too convenient as if cops are this stupid, making cops look this corrupt, this bad, setting up kids in a park. This is forced writing. This is very, they're, they're, it can feel a little bit like that in a way, but, but then the flip side of it, this is a feel good comic. This is Nightwing. This is Nightwing. This comic book embodies, continues to embody hope, but at the same time, it's very conveniently wrapped up. You know, there's, there's moments where Dick Grayson just, you know, this one cop says to Dick Grayson, you may need to accept that you're not in control of every situation, Mr. Grayson. And of course, at the end, Dick Grayson says the same thing to the cop when the cop is found, his fellow cops are found to be corrupt. You may need to accept that you're not in control of every situation, Commissioner McLean. So again, kind of a little bit tropey, kind of convenient wrap up, but it's feel good and it puts a smile on your face. And he's in love with Barbara Gordon. And we know we're going to probably get a wedding at issue 100. We're going to get some payoff here. This comic book puts a smile on, on your face and... I think that it continues to be fun and the cover is great with Barbara, with Batgirl, Nightwing under her looking over the city of Bloodhaven. This, I I have fun with this issue. I like it. I know what the uh, people who are frustrated with it are saying, uh, but I... I don't know. Even if you're, even if you're pessimistic about this title, I, I just think it's... I choose to enjoy it. I'm having a lot of fun with this. And uh, it's hard not to love Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon, Bruno Redondo's art. I I just think that this is this is a comic book that if you want to feel good about yourself and good about the world and that hope is not lost and doing the right thing will lead to a better tomorrow, <laughs> you, you you can read Nightwing. And that's that's why this this that's why this comic is uh what how Tom Taylor is isn't really succeeding to the extent that I'd like in Superman Son of Kalal. He's succeeding t- to the extent that I need him to on Nightwing. And so I really enjoyed this issue and an, another great comic for the week. What about you? Yeah, I I don't even have that criticism. Um you know, you say it's convenient. I, I say you're talking about Dick Grayson, who's been around the block in at Bloodhaven. Many, many times he knows how corrupt it is. And you're talking about the genius that is Barbara Gordon. Of course they know that Blockbuster is going to try to pull strings. We know that Blockbuster, you know, thinks that he controls the mayor's office. We haven't really explored, although this is the first time we actually see Dick Grayson's supposed sister here. Um, We haven't really explored that, but he definitely, Blockbuster believes he has the, the mayor under his thumb killed the previous mayor, deputy mayor, supposedly is Nightwing's sister, uh, is in charge. So he's got the, the whole city wired, right? He's got it dialed in. So of course they're going to have their own cameras. Of course they're going to have the, uh, you know, the, the foresight to know that, okay, who are they going to send to do the, this uh, vandalizing? Of course it's going to be cops. So I actually loved it. And I love that he got to turn the tables because, I mean, like it or not, uh, in this country, at least in the United States, we've had, you know, all kinds of stories of corrupt law enforcement, um, uh, some some groups that have infiltrated law enforcement, uh, you know, for whatever reason, law enforcement just draws that sort of, you know, personality, uh, people that like to, to be above the law and then, you know, bend it to their own 
devices. So it's all too realistic in my mind. Um, and I loved having the tables turned. And I love the fact that Tom Taylor got to uh, have Dick Grayson throw those words right back in Commissioner McLean's face. Uh, you're right. I mean, it, it is somewhat cathartic and somewhat feel good. Um, but at the end of the day, the best parts of the story, as much as I you know, kind of enjoyed that, uh, seeing those corrupt police officers get their comeuppance, the best part of the story is uh, the revelation. Well, first of all, seeing Heartless get his butt kicked by Blockbuster. And, uh, you know, it's always great when villains are, you know, damaging each other, um, sort of soften them up for Nightwing at the end of the day. And then the revelation that, yeah, he's more machine than man, apparently, it looks like. I mean, uh, they pull the sleeve back and they're going to plug a, a USB drive into him, but he has plenty of other. Uh, he's got like, you know, USB-C, he's got USB-B, he's got HDMI, he's got digital display. He's got all these different kind of ports. I can just imagine Bruno Redondo like looking up computer port and getting all these different visuals um, to see what he can use to uh, plug into Heartless. So, yeah, he definitely. I mean, is he, is he even a man? Is, it a, is he a cyborg? Like what's going on? So that's very intriguing. And, yeah, he's stealing all these hearts from people so that he can use them himself to keep himself so he can keep himself going. So that's very interesting. Um, when you said you were going to say the same thing you always say, I, I thought you were going to talk about the pacing and how uh, it tends to be a little on the slower side for Nightwing. I, I don't know what it is. I mean, we get great character moments, but it does, if I have any complaint, it's that it doesn't move a little faster. Yeah. Although, you know, that being said, this was a relatively fast-paced issue. We did get, you know, more of a chunk of story than we've had in previous ones. But when you look at his Superman Son of Kal-El, which I feel like he gets more criticism for. Um, although he, there was tons of criticism about Bruno Redondo's choices uh, for who he put on the cover of this that I thought were just absolutely just ridiculous and out of place, th those criticisms. But regardless, uh, I feel like Superman, Son of Kal-El is moving along uh, a little faster than this. But yeah, I saw people complaining, oh, how come there's no Duke Thomas on the cover of, of Nightwing? Duke Thomas hasn't been in Nightwing. So if you want to know why Bitewing is on the cover and not Duke Thomas, like whatever. I mean, everybody, everybody's going to yeah. you know love who they love. And if Duke Thomas is your favorite signal, is your favorite DC character, then hey, that's great. Um, the fact of the matter is we haven't seen Duke Thomas in a lot of books. And that should be your criticism. And you should direct that criticism toward DC editorial, not toward these guys who, I mean, if anything, Tom Taylor and Bruno Redondo – I mean, these, these guys did the Suicide Squad with maybe the most diverse and representative team ever uh, in a su Suicide Squad book. Th these are wrong people to be calling out for, you know, lack of diversity. Um, I, I honestly, frankly, feel Duke Thomas is a boring character and I don't need to read any stories about Duke Thomas. But maybe that's maybe that's a valid point that this person is pointing out. Hey, I need more Duke Thomas stories. I need someone to actually develop them. You know, I feel like Scott Snyder brought him, you know, brought him onto the table and then never did anything worthwhile with him. He's, he's not an interesting character. I would argue that Jace Fox has been more developed than, than Duke Thomas has. Yeah. You know, so if you have a complaint, complain to DC editorial about that. Um, don't complain <laughs> that, you know, Bruno Redondo didn't put Duke Thomas on the cover of a comic. He's never appeared in <laughs> like he's ne all the people that are on the cover. It's a Brady Bunch style cover. If you haven't seen it, they've all appeared in the book. They've all been in Nightwing issues. Duke Thomas has not. So anyway, I'll get off my soapbox uh, about people picking on Tom King because he doesn't des he doesn't deserve it. Neither does Bruno Redondo. These guys are doing a fantastic job. If you if you want to complain, 
tell them to, you know, write, I don't want to say write faster, but bigger, give, DC, give them more pages so we can get bigger chunks of story in these Nightwing issues. So uh, anyway, on to the last book we're going to talk about in detail. It's uh, another big special 48 page um, Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen's boss, Perry White. So obviously it's a Perry White one shot. The two main stories are written by the same creative team that brought us the Jimmy Olsen um, maxi series. So we have Matt Fraction as the writer, Steve Lieber on art, Nathan Fairbairn on colors and Clayton Cowell on letters. Then there's a reprint from Action Comics number 461 from April 1976, the toughest newsboy in town. It's basically the origin of Perry White. Uh, it's from writer Elliot S. Magan. Kurt Swan does the art, the legendary Kurt Swan. Tex Blaisdale on the colors. And then from Action Comics number 436, March 1974, which technically you talk March 1974, this book came out. That's the month I was born, the month and year I was born. Uh, <laughs> but what's so interesting about this story, it's called The Super Cigars of Perry White. It's probably my favorite story in this book. It is so much fun. It feels so Silver Age, but technically it's Bronze Age. You know, Silver Age ended in, in the 1970s. There wasn't yeah. one event like the beginning of the Silver Age was showcase number four with the, the Barry Allen Flash. It was more of a, a subtle shift from the Silver Age to the Bronze Age, but most people agree it was 1970 uh, yeah. that it happened, kind of a shift throughout that year. But man, if this doesn't feel like a Silver Age story, uh, that's also written by Elliot S. Magan. Again, the legendary Kurt Swan on art, Vince Coletta on the, the inks. And then there's uh, Old Men Talking in Bars, which is a reprint from a Superman 80-page giant from 2011, written by Neil Kled. Dean Haspel, Joe Infernari, and John J. Hill are listed. I'm not sure. I mean, Neil, I think probably Neil and Dean co-wrote it, and Joe Infernari um, did the art, and then John J. Hill's a, a, a designer, a letterer, so he must have done the letters. Uh, and then finally, from Superman number 18, just a couple of years ago, December 2019, the, the truth issue, we only get an excerpt from it, just that really uh, poignant scene between Clark and and Perry White with no words. Uh, Brian Michael Bennis was the writer. Gorgeous art by Yvonne Reese and Joe Prado. Alex Sinclair does the colors. Dave Sharp on letters. So <laughs> this is very much focused, as you can tell by the title, on Perry White. So the first story is just kind of in Perry White's own words. He's narrating what it means to be the the editor of uh, of the Daily Planet and how he wrote the headline or his reporters wrote the headline the Daily Planet reported over and over and over, thousands of times, Superman saves Metropolis. And <laughs> what's interesting is the double-page spread, they find different ways to say the same thing over and over. You know, city endures, Superman sighted, Superman protects Metropolis, Superman saves Metropolis, city again saved by Superman, like all these different ways of saying the same thing. And then at the end, uh, during an alien invasion the city gets to return the favor and, and protect Superman and save Superman. So uh, that's a really fun story. The second one is more of a Jimmy Olsen story, uh, kind of leaning into the idea that Jimmy Olsen's kind of a walking disaster, uh, but shows sort of the more fatherly side of, uh, of Perry White and how he kind of looks out for Jimmy and sees him as some somewhat of a son. Um, then the toughest newsboy Legion in town, one of the reprints, like I said, uh, basically is Perry telling his origin, how he got his job at the Daily Planet as a reporter to his grandkids. 
my favorite story is Super Cigars with Perry White. So Perry, along with Superman, helps to save some aliens on a planet from some invasion or what have you. And unbeknownst to Perry, they give him a gift. They give him cigars that while he's smoking them, give him superpowers. And throughout the course of the story, he doesn't realize why he's getting superpowers. Um, but he's ba- like almost omnipotent, more powerful than Superman. So while he's happens to be smoking a cigar, he's like, well, if I have these powers, pretty much anything I wish I can do, I wish to know how I got these powers. And then he has this vision of, uh, you know, when he smokes the cigars, he has these powers and helps Superman on various missions and what have you. Uh, but unfortunately, once he learns of how he has the powers, he only has one cigar left. So he puts it in the safe for safekeeping to use for a rainy day. I don't know that he ever used it. But it would be great based if some writer out there uh, reads this and then does a story about Perry using his last cigar in present day would be pretty fun. <laughs> that would uh, be. That Grant, yeah, Grant Morrison be, will tell that story. <laughs> yeah, it'd be fat. Yeah, it'd be fun. Uh, the old man talking in bars is basically Perry and Wildcat comparing stories. They have a lot in common and they find some common ground. So that one's pretty interesting. Um, and then, yeah, like I said, the, the, the excerpt without any – uh, dialogue, uh, except just um, some context. Superman having a, a conversation with Adam Strange, um, and again, I thought as much as I didn't like the fact that Brian Michael Bendis had Superman reveal his um, secret identity, this was a good moment and it felt very, uh, very realistic of what Perry's reaction would be when Clark revealed his identity to him. So, yeah, fun story. Uh, if you're a Superman fan, probably want to pick this up. What do you think, Rocky? Yeah, my, my favorite stories is uh, my my favorite artist of all time, just because it's it's in my heart is Kurt Swan, uh, followed by Darwin Cook. But I, I was I feel my first comic books were uh, Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes and Superman, and Kurt Swan was the artist, and so he always I was always a Kurt Swan fan. I was never a Jack Kirby fan. And um, I just, I just like, uh, ja- uh, I just love Kurt Swan's style of art, and his, his and his collaborations with Vince Coletta. Man, it's just, I mean, uh, I just, I just love them. And just the, you, you could tell, you could tell that this, uh, the the super cigar uh, story is particularly good because you can tell they they don't show the cover. I I I wish I would have Googled it because. You, you know the the style of storytelling even at the t- tail end of the uh, at the at the beginning of the at the tail end of the silver age beginning of the bronze age you know they'd come up with a ridiculous cover and the cover probably has Perry White having superpowers and they said okay here's the cover super Perry White's flying now write a story around it and then, <laughs> and then Elias Magny would do just that and so of course you got these superpowered cigars which were gifted to Perry White because he helped Superman help these mutant kids and as a gift to Perry White they're they're going to they're going to give give him these superpowers through his cigars and it's such a typical it's exactly the type of story that you, you that were so common back then, and um, it's uh, you know, you know nowadays these types of stories would they would never be written because they're just you know our our sense of storytelling we want we want we want more sophisticated stories with a little bit more plot and a little bit more substance to them than than we than le- we want less of this fantastical what you could call fantastical, almost nonsense. But it's funny, you know, growing up, I just love stories like this because they were just so good. But those are the ones that stand out for me. Uh, I do, I was, um, I actually enjoyed Matt Fraction's Jimmy Olsen run. 
to a point, I thought that I when, when Matt Fraction wrote Jimmy Olsen, he was writing Jimmy Olsen just as Greg Rucka was doing the Lois his twelve issue Lois Lane series at the same time that that Jim um, that Brian Michael Bendis was was actually doing the uh, his Superman run that ultimately showed Perry White, you know, you know, hugging Clark upon the big, you know, the truth revealed, the, the secret identity revelation. Well, the the story is actually reprinted here, where um, it was actually one of the more funny uh, stories with with uh, Jimmy Olsen, where Jimmy Olsen is actually revealed as uh, in a force in the story called Force Manure. <laughs> Jimmy Olsen is criticized by Perry White for costing the uh, the the Daily Planet so much money in insurance, but uh, much to Perry White's delight, the accountants at the, uh, at the Daily Planet, uh, led by Leon, another character that has disappeared, a Bendis incarnate character that has disappeared, went back to Earth three that we've never heard from again. She it's pointed out that well, even though Perry. Even though Jimmy Olsen costs the Daily Planet a lot of money and the insurance premiums keep going up because of Jimmy Olsen's crazy adventures with Superman, the fact is Jimmy Olsen makes the Daily Planet. He's the number one earner, income earner for the Daily Planet because of his social media presence because he's got a, apparently a very influential YouTube channel and he's and, and Twitch and everything else on social media. So it was Yeah, well, they say everybody wants to tune in to see what disaster he's yeah. going <laughs> to Exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot of funny. Like Matt Fraction, actually, his Superman run. Ultimately, his Jimmy Olsen twelve issue Jimmy Olsen. So it ended with with Jimmy Olsen actually saving the Daily Planet from a Lex Luthor takeover because it's revealed that Jimmy Olsen's family is actually linked to Lex Luthor's family in the early history of Metropolis, and 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 in fact, it's revealed that Jimmy Olsen actually inherited. Uh, billions of dollars, and and Lex Luthor didn't want him to discover that. And I'm, I'm making, I'm oversimplifying it. Suffice to say, Jimmy Olsen made a deal that he would give uh, Lex Luthor back a large part of the uh, of the empire that he he inherited, but he only wanted to keep he he wanted to at least save the Daily Planet and keep the Daily Planet out of Lex Luthor's hands. And that's sort of like the deal that was made. And so. You know, so technically Jimmy is is Perry White's boss, which is uh, ironic enough, which is kind of it ended on that kind of funny note. But uh, in any event, it's probably a highly underrated series that uh, Matt Fraction's uh, Jimmy Olsen run. It's it's because it's a it's a Silver Age. It's a it's a 12 issue Silver Age story, but told with modern day sensibilities. And it didn't really satisfy everyone, and I had some issues with that as well. But it was nice that this they incorporated this story for Perry White. Odd choice for Perry White, but it's nice to see him getting some love. It's a kind of you know I'm a little surprised that that curious choice of all the characters DC would focus on. It's Perry White, but you know I have to admit I'm it it brought back the feels for me for the nostalgia of Kurt Swan. Yeah, and you're 100 percent right about that. Um, that cover for uh, Action Comics number 436. So what's interesting, I just recently bought that issue because uh, I was missing it from my Action Comics run. And I think maybe at Phoenix Comic-Con yeah. um, last month, uh, somebody probably had it in their dollar bin. And basically Superman's looking out the window of the Daily Planet and Perry's zooming up from below flying and Superman saying, this is a job for, and then Perry White finishes the <laughs> sentence by saying, Perry White! And yeah. he's... Uh, He's flying very fast toward a plane in the distance that's falling out of the sky. 
so yeah, absolutely fantastic. It feels very, very Silver Age, as I said. So, uh, all right. In addition to those books, there are a couple of other um, uh, single issues that are out that we typically don't cover. So the Earth Prime miniseries, Earth Prime number six, Six Heroes Twilight is out this week. Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Number 116 is also out this week. And then there is one collection. It's uh, a hardcover Nightwing Fear State from Tom Taylor, Tinny Howard, Robbie Rodriguez, Cian Torme, Christian Ducey is out this week as well. So uh, that's going to do it for our DC Spotlight. Just a quick reminder, don't forget to tune in on Wednesday, tomorrow, if you're listening on the day this is released, for our uh, New Comics Wednesday, which is a spoiler-free look at some Marvel and independent books that are going to be out this week. Um, I think I have some interviews coming up this week, but they haven't been confirmed yet. So uh, stay tuned for that. Don't forget, if you're listening on audio only, to go over to YouTube and subscribe to Rocky's channel, Comic Boom, Comic Space Boom, exclamation point to find it. Like this video, subscribe, ring the notification bell. You guys know how it works. Uh, if you're checking us out on YouTube and you want to be sure not to miss any of the Comic Source content, just go to your favorite podcasting app or platform on your smart device. Do a search for the Comic Source and subscribe. Uh, numbers have been doing really, really well. I know that I've slipped way, way behind on Spawn. I'm trying to find time to re- go back and re- record huge amounts of it. It feels daunting at this point, but I'm hoping to get back to it at some point. So Yeah, I've had some readers, I've had some comments on YouTube. They want me to collaborate with you further on spawn and i said i just don't have the time but it's like yeah because so, they you know they, yeah. they i i direct them to your podcast uh so the comic source podcast because i know that uh it's gotten some it's gotten some uh love so that's it's good to hear that it's uh popular so hopefully you'll be able to pick it up yeah i mean i was traveling a lot and that got me out of the sort of the habit of of doing it and um to be honest i'm i'm getting more than four hours of sleep a night i'm sleeping like six hours a night and those two hours are the two hours that I would do spawn. Uh, and I'm just not as young as I used to be. And I'm finding that I, I feel so much healthier getting six hours instead of four hours of sleep. So uh, sure. I'm trying to find time. I'm trying to find time, though. I promise everybody. So uh, anything else to add, Rocky, as we're winding down here? Uh, no, just uh, to anyone watching, uh, on, you know, if you're watching on YouTube, feel free to leave a comment. Uh, what was your favorite comic book of this week? Uh, for myself, uh, I'm going to... I think I'm going to go. It's it's you know what it's a it's a two way tie for me. I'm going to go with World's Finest and Black Adam. What do you th- what wow. are your choices? Wow, that I mean it's so it's such a tough choice. Black Adam, <laughs> yeah, really good. World's Finest, World's Finest has my favorite moment, but I can I give the whole by. I mean, I thought Void Song was really. really I, I think Void Song comes in a very very. Very, very close second yeah. to the Flash. The Flash. Yeah. I mean, Jeremy good Adams. Just, like, I can't yeah, disagree. I could have a four-way tie for first, almost. Yeah, it was a good so, week. Yeah, I mean, again, Young Justice was good night. Yeah, uh, you can't go wrong. Pick up some DC comics. Uh, leave some comments below, like Rocky said, and tell us uh, what you thought was the best. We appreciate you guys tuning in as always. Uh, appreciate the support, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. 
Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.